Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic for IGN. Uh, people call me Rockmeister McCule. And with me, as always, is my uh, scintillating, intelligent, and ever-so-charming co-host. Oh, thank you, Whitney. Mr. William Bibiani, introduce yourself. Well, you just did. My name is William Bibiani. I am also a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. And this week on Critically Acclaimed, we got a bunch of reviews to review, and also movies to movie. Uh, In addition to other things that aren't things, we're going to be reviewing... (laughs) Here are the movies we're reviewing. Nice and articulate there. Thank you. Trolls World Tour. We Summon the Darkness. Yes, we do. Love. Wedding. Repeat. That's one movie, not three. Hmm. Tiger Tail. Sea Fever. And a little film with a title that cannot be resisted. You're Baking Me Crazy. Oh my God, you didn't. You're Baking me crazy. Is Kevin Bacon in it? No, he should be. He should that would have, have been, been great. Man. Yes, there's a movie called You're Bacon Me Crazy. <laughs> it is a romantic comedy. I am so glad I saw it, and you're going to be so glad you heard about <laughs> oh it. God. And then we're going to follow. Is it, is it B-A-K-I-N apostrophe, or is it bacon like? Bacon, s- just s- the word bacon. Sizzling, pe- pe- Sizzling bacon. All right, all right. Yeah. It, it would work both ways, but it's right. bacon as in mm, delicious bacon. And after we uh, talk about that delightful uh, romantic comedy for all ages, we're going to be talking about William Lustig's ultra-violent maniac from 1980, because that is part of the critically acclaimed streaming club here at Critically Acclaimed. Because uh, we're taking all of this quarantine time to sort of catch up on movies that one or both of us haven't seen. That is a cult classic. And Whitney hasn't seen it. I hadn't seen it. Well, you hadn't. Yeah, you have now. No, I, I, and yeah. now I have. Yeah, time's run out. You should have yeah. caught up by now. <laughs> and I feel a little filthier. Yeah, um, that's about right. But we'll save good, that for the that's end. That's a good filthy flick. Um, but yeah, why don't we start with uh, what is kind of the biggest news? Because uh, this was, um, from what I recall, the first film that was announced to, uh, that was going to be re- released in theaters. Yep. But was pulled from theaters uh, when coronavirus hit. Yep. And w- it was announced that this one was actually going to go straight to streaming. Yeah. So it was actually a high-profile major studio release that they declared openly this is going to be a streaming release. We're going to uh, release it in homes. Yep. Uh, the same day we're going to release it in theaters. Just kidding. There's no theaters. It's just in homes. There now. are actually a few theaters left. Drive-ins can still have social oh, distancing. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So there are still a few drive-in theaters around the country, and apparently it did open in some of them, hmm. uh, or so I've heard. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Trolls World Tour, the sequel to Trolls, not World Tour, uh, uh, and Trolls, which was based upon the uh, the plastic troll dolls. Yeah, they're little troll looking dudes, yeah, and they, they got big belly buttons, with little sparkles on them, the big and hair, crazy family. hair. The design of the trolls in the movie looks nothing like those dolls. It's so got it's, the hair, and um, yeah, you have to look really closely to see the gems in their tummies. Yeah, they don't. Well, they're wearing mm. shirts. Yeah. So it kind of doesn't matter. They should they should all be naked. Those little troll dolls were naked. They weren't no, we wearing clothes. We don't need that. That's I fine. mean they, they also I don't need They also don't have genitals like the kids in Love Is. But uh 
There's a reference for no one. Wow. Um, yeah, the comic strip that was so bad it wasn't in the comic section. It's in another section of the paper altogether. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Trolls. The original Trolls was a movie I missed when it first came out. Did you see it? No, I did not see Trolls. So you still haven't seen Trolls. And I still haven't seen Trolls. Well, let me give you the gist on Trolls 1, because wow. I did catch up because I'm a professional. You know what? I believe every sequel should be able to hold up on its own. I also believe that, but I also believe that not everyone can have that experience, and so discussing it in context with the first film that a lot of people have seen is also mm. relevant. Fine. We have both perspectives now. Yay! So the original <laughs> Trolls is actually, and, and here's the thing, you do not need to see the original film for this one. There's like almost no reference to it whatsoever mm. in the new one, except for a couple of characters who show up at the end, and sort of a general backstory. So... Uh, trolls are uh, cute little magical creatures who sing a lot of pop songs. And this is a jukebox musical without shame. And they, they live in the woods, but the woods are made of felt. Well, initially they didn't live in the woods. Initially, in the original film, they lived in a troll tree. And okay. the troll tree was in the heart of an urban center mm. that was surrounded by ogre-type creatures called Bergens. And Bergens... They should have been Boglins. They're not. They should have been. You remember Boglins? No. They were a very popular toy in the late 1980s. The little goblin heads that came in cages. Oh, yeah. They were like little puppets. Those are called Boglins. Yeah, I don't think they got the rights to Boglins. Uh, That that, that movie's coming. Mark mark my words. They're called Bergens because I think that's the hometown of the guy who invented the trolls. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But the Bergens, these little troll monsters... Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're much, much bigger than trolls. They're like human size, and the trolls are like smurf size. Yeah. And uh, the Bergens uh, cannot experience the emotion of happiness. Okay. Except when they eat a troll. That's the only thing that makes them happy. It's the only thing that makes them happy. So at the beginning of the movie, the king of the <laughs> Bergens, his youngest son is finally old enough to participate in their yearly holiday of trollstice. Mm-hmm. And he's going to finally eat his first troll, and he's going to finally know what happiness is like for the first time. But the trolls have escaped, and they escape to the woods where they're going to live in in happiness forever after. And there's a great scene where the king, where the prince turns to the king and says, "Dad, if we don't have any more trolls, how will I ever be happy?" And the dad says, "You won't. There's no more happiness. You're just going to have to get used to that. Life sucks now." Wait, what what are they called? Bergens? Bergens. B-E-R-G-I-N, I think. Thomas Dom invented the troll dolls in Gull in Denmark. Yeah, I think he might have been where he was from. Oh, all right. Anyway, that's what I heard. I could be wrong. Mm. Thank you for, <laughs> for, for spot-checking me, because you don't trust me, Whitney. No, I, I was curious for, okay. on my, for um, So, anyway, the first movie was basically about how the trolls got kidnapped by the Bergens again, and there was a princess troll played by Anna Kendrick, and a troll who uh, hated singing and dancing because him singing killed his grandma. Weirdly dark, yeah. the first one, actually. And uh, together they had to teach the Bergens that happiness was inside them all along. And the Justin Timberlake troll, who was like kind of the dour, gothy troll. Um, did he bring he, sexy back? He did not bring sexy back, although mm. he most certainly could have. Uh, at the end of the movie, he, who had been like portrayed as sort of grayscale with black hair, to show how he was different from all the other trolls, because he had negative emotions and they were all positivity all the time. Um, he actually found his true colors, which he did by singing the song True Colors. And uh, he I'm, actually. I'm glad I haven't seen this movie. He actually, <laughs> You're describing he actually, something just horrendous. He actually turned blue. Okay. 
and like brightly colored. I think he had red hair, maybe. And that is completely forgotten in the second one. They're He's just gray like, again. Yeah, yeah, it's just like this is what he looks like. We regret having him like his whole character arc be over in the first film. It's like when the makers of Shrek said that if we'd known we were going to get a sequel, they never would have gotten married at the end of the film. Oh, there you go. Because we would have done that in the sequel. That would have made more sense. But um, anyway. Or like in Back to the Future, where Robert Zemeckis said, man, if we'd known we were actually going to get a sequel, we never would have let Marty McFly's girlfriend get in the car. Because as soon as she gets to the future, they just knock her out. That's right. <laughs> and they just leave her on a porch. Like they had no idea what to do with her character. <laughs> Probably could have thought of something if they were clever, but they were not. They just sort of zipped her hey, out of the on, movie. Those are incredibly clever movies. I, I know, but hear. we couldn't come up with a role for a woman in that thing that wasn't like horny mom. Yeah, well, like I, there, there were... All, we had to give like four roles to Michael J. Fox. Yeah, and and anyway, uh, so yeah, the sequel, all of that happened. The Bergens aren't a thing anymore. That's awesome. Uh, it turns out that trolls, that the trolls that we knew are pop trolls, and there are whole other civilizations of trolls out there, there who represent different kinds of music. There are six kingdoms in the troll universe. Uh, there's, there's techno trolls. Well, and, and yeah, country the, trolls. Techno trolls, country trolls. Classical trolls. Funk trolls, classical trolls, and country. No, we said country. We said country. What's the other one? Oh, uh, hard rock trolls. And the hard, uh, yes, the hard rock trolls who are the antagonists of the picture. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we learned that uh, Poppy is pop troll, and all they do is sing pop music, and they believe that pop music uh, should only enforce a lot of energy and positive feelings. Yeah. Happiness and, is good, ergo uh, pop music is the best music. Uh, hard rock led by um, Rachel Bloom, feels differently. Yeah. And uh, they're hard rock, but they play stuff like Scorpions. Yeah. And Barracuda. I'm wondering well, Barracuda's if, pretty good, but... Yeah, I wouldn't call Heart a hard rock band. No, though. I suppose not. They're, 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 they're pretty folk than anything. Ozzy Osbourne plays, like, the former king. Yeah. Because, like, his princess queen... The queen is princess mm. now queen. And, like, so Ozzy Osbourne's there, and I think they do play Crazy Train. That's... Crazy, okay. That's, that's hard that's rock. Hard rock. Like, but, um, like, Black Sabbath is genuinely hard rock. I'm wondering where, like, if the Norwegian black metal trolls would hang out with these posers. But, uh... <laughs> well, there's a lot of the, talk about, uh, uh, the differences between different musical mm-hmm. genres. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the differences between different people. Uh, this is a movie that is basically about the problems with white progressivism. <laughs> Because it's well, all basically just like, hey, we're all the same, right? That's what the Anna Kendrick troll believes. Yeah. I'm trying to unite all the trolls because we're all the same. And you're every single other troll is trying to tell her, no, we're all different. Well, and, <laughs> and also, that's okay. And also, hey, you, you're using pop music to erase some very important culture. Yeah, there's actually like legit criticism of pop music. They, they, they use that, in, like there's one uh, musical number that addresses that directly. The rest of the movie's not really about that. Um, no, but they, it's they, in uh, there. And I do appreciate that. Yeah. There's actual like dialogue about how pop music is actually pretty superficial, mm. and a lot of these like country music gets really sad and heavy metal deals with a lot of anger and like it's just what well, your emotional state can can dictate the kind of music you like and yeah. Uh, the ultimate message is it's okay to listen to everything, but they don't really point out that some people don't want to listen to everything. It's just. Mm. 
everybody needs to be a little bit country and everybody needs to be a little bit rock and roll. And um, yeah, the, the plot of the movie is the evil hard rock troll queen wants to collect uh, six magical loot strings. Mm-hmm. Uh, one belongs to each of the troll kingdoms. If she puts them all on a flying V guitar and hits like a metal power chord, she'll mm-hmm. turn everybody into rock zombies. Right. It's the plot of Black Roses, essentially. Um, <laughs> That's a great movie. I like Black Roses. People don't talk about people. I think uh, there's two heavy metal hor- uh, horror movies in the mid '80s <laughs> that deserve a bigger cult. A lot of people know Rock and Roll Nightmare, and you should. Mm. It's awesome. The John Michael Thor. Yeah, just a bunch of the world's hair- studliest Canadian. Just a bunch of muscle bound, hairy rock gods mm. just go to a go to a cabin in the woods to record their latest album, and they end up beset by Satan. Mm. It's great. <laughs> but there's two others, one of which is Trick or Treat. Not to be confused with the anthology movie Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat, yeah. Trick or Treat is which about. I haven't seen. I haven't oh, it's really, really good. That, yeah. It's really good. It's about uh, uh, a teenager who's really into metal, and his favorite heavy metal star uh, dies in a fire while doing a satanic ritual. And he, he's a, he has a posthumous album that's coming out. And he plays the album backwards, and that summons the ghost of the heavy metal god. And he uh, starts killing everybody, and he puts on this amazing show where he's like shooting lightning out his guitar. Oh, that sounds amazing. It's really um, good. And Black Roses is pretty similar, but also fucking awesome. Describe well, Black Roses. Black, Black Roses is about um, a little, like, super, super square uh, white suburban town in middle America. And the kids are getting really into this. this one band called Black Roses, this heavy metal band, and they're going to come through town, and and all the parents are 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 really freaking out, oh no, what what influence is this heavy metal going to have on our kids, but they try to keep an open mind. It turns out that they really are heavy metal demons, and they're using the power of their rock to not just mind wipe, but also mutate into monsters, the teenagers of the town. It's great. It's pretty cool. I it's have, so good. I haven't seen that. I have seen Rocktober Blood, I which is um, about a, a slain heavy metal star who comes back from the dead and starts killing people on stage. Back in the 80s when um, people were genuinely worried that heavy metal was going to like mm-hmm. be the death of their kids and like bring Satan forth from you know s- insignias on the ground and shit. Horror filmmakers ran with that, and there's a lot. <laughs> the gate starts out that way too. Like, there's a ton of fun heavy metal Tony, horror movies. There's one with Tony Basil. It's called Slaughterhouse Rock. Oh, with I don't Tony think I've Basil. Seen that, one. That, that one's a good one. I should too. see that. I love Tony you know, Basil. Late '80s. Um, Rockula, not heavy metal, but still fucking mm. awesome. Anyway, uh, Trolls World Tour. This is not nearly as dark as the original, which had a lot of jokes about like corpses and shit. Mm. Like it. It's a weird film in a lot of ways, but um, I feel like every 10 minutes there's like a weird joke in the original Trolls movie, mm. and I feel like it's just the animators trying to make sure that like stoners keep paying attention, because we know <laughs> you're going to watch this really colorful kids movie, but every once in a while we're going to do something and be like, what the fuck was that? Mm. The most what the fuck was that moment in this movie, and this... Was it when the worm dies? Yes. <laughs> there's a troll voiced by James Corden. And he has... He's playing the same role as he is in the Emoji movie. And the same role yeah. that he played in Cats. In Cats like he's, yeah. just, he's just the big, he's, fat singing guy. He's in a lot of bad CGI flicks. He's, anyway. It is what it is. Uh, he has a sidekick. And his sidekick it's is... It's like a pet, really. Yeah. It, it's, like a, it's, like, it's like a little worm. I think its name is Mr. Jingles. I, I forgot its name. I think Something it's Mr. Like Jingles. That, yeah. And 
it's like a little it's it's like it looks like a gummy worm but like really small it's like, like some, a gummy maggot it's like something you'd buy at a road stop gift shop yeah you know, on heading through the middle of the country it doesn't really speak much it's just sort of there with him every once in a while it'll say some weird line of dialogue and its voice changes like it's really yeah. squeaky for a long and then it says something like in basso profundo there's a scene in this movie where all the trolls like fall over the side of a cliff and into a river and it cuts to a shot of mr jingles but it's not mr jingles it's mr jingles and like uh, uh, he's like wearing like a crown and he's surrounded by a bunch of hearts and he just looks at the camera right at you and he just says welcome home and then it cuts to the actual Mr. Jingles and that was his POV as he's looking like what has happened what happened when I died and then they resuscitate Mr. Jingles by giving him mouth to mouth and Mr. Jingles looks sad to be alive <laughs> And there's a quick shout out to that in the closing credits. They never explain what that meant. He died. But what does he see? What that's, is that? That's the worm's afterlife. That's a weird. <laughs> that doesn't. Ex- that, I need more than that. All right. It's, it's a little, I want a whole spinoff. It's, it's a about little what ta- happens when worms die. It's a little talking worm that wears a hat that is the pet of a troll that lives in a world made of felt. And they didn't need to All go right. that far. <laughs> It it did feel a little bit like one of the SpongeBob movies, which yeah. are just you know com- weird keep you completely off balance. Uh, I wish this movie were weird. It's just sort of shrill. Uh, there's a lot of yelling. Uh, mm. The jokes don't really land. The whole idea that you know music needs to come together or everybody has their own taste doesn't really read, except in like one or two scenes, which were clearly like Look, added after they had done a couple drafts. As a kids' movie goes, this mm. one's message is music is good. Um, and it is. And uh, you should listen to different kinds of music. You should probably at least scope them out. Yeah, you should probably have a passing awareness of other mm-hmm. music, even if it's not your jam. Uh, I do appreciate that there are some digs at pop music, and it is basically yeah, calling out that like pop music can be a little shallow, and pop music does sometimes distract attention away from other art forms that arguably have more depth mm-hmm. and more nuance. Uh, and I appreciated that. I appreciate that it was a story about... Uh, a protagonist who thinks everything is okay and everything will be okay as long as we get together, mm-hmm. learning that, um, yeah, you know, oh, I don't see differences between people actually isn't very progressive. <laughs> yeah. It's just a different kind of ignorance. Mm-hmm. And she actually needs to learn to respect differences so, and un- understand, yeah. see, and celebrate differences rather yeah. than be blind. It's them. not about homogenization, it's not about mm-hmm. how I accept you, it's not about you. That's basically it. The whole movie is people yelling at the protagonist. It's not about you. And it's not. Mm. And I appreciate that there was at least some thought that went into a theme. I suppose so. That's pretty thin. But basically so. what we've got here is a cornucopia of color and felt. And yeah, every single thing in this movie looks like it was made in like a fuzzy felt scrapbook. And of some of the animation they tried to make look like stop motion. A little bit, and, yeah, weird. And here's my question. If it's set in a world of felt and it's made out of, and the characters are troll dolls, why isn't this a stop motion film? It's too complicated. It, I know it's too complicated. It would have taken a lot longer. Yeah. And you know, even studios like Leica that have more or less streamlined it compared to other studios, mm-hmm. uh, e- even those films take a long, 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 long yeah. time to make. 
But aesthetically, it makes sense. I agree. Uh, you know, dolls in a world of felt, it's kind of this world of little toys listening to music and when, playing with their imaginations. When you're creating something in CGI, I understand the idea of wanting to give it a texture because, it, mm. yeah, it, it tends to look pretty fake unless you're going for ultra-realism. And even then, sometimes it looks mm. fake. Um, I remember uh, I interviewed like Pete Doctor uh, about Inside Out. Mm. And we talked about how all of the... Um, the uh, characters inside of Riley's mind mm-hmm. in Inside Out, they're not made of flesh. And if you look real carefully, they're made of like flome. Just like right. little, like little, like globules of ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that I think gives it a lot of texture. So I think what they decided to do was, and they really, they toyed with it in the original trolls. And there's bits like that. They leaned into it super hard. <laughs> in the sequel. And I think that gives it a really fun aesthetic. There's a lot of stuff where they're like they're running away from somebody and then they like carve into the cloth in the floor even though it's outside and, and, it's, and they like crawl underneath the paper in order to get to them. That's mm-hmm. fun. That's a neat thing. I love like there's this opening bit with all the techno trolls where they're all underground and mm-hmm. it's really fucking bright and well, colorful. They're, they're, they're underwater. Yeah, that's why I'm oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. It's my apologies. Yes, yeah. underwater. They're underwater. It's like Atlantis. And it is so, like, bioluminescent and colorful. And it really sucks that no one's going to get to see this on the big screen. Because uh, clearly this was designed to be like, ooh, this yeah, well, is it's, pretty. It's, it's a major studio release. It's in, you know, ultra high definition mm-hmm. because that's the way they make these films. And Right. And, but uh, not I, every I, studio release they, demands, I think, big screen. I suppose so. And the others, I think was clearly intended. The image it. is very detailed. And if you have an ultra high, D, uh, high def television you'll probably be able to see it okay yeah it doesn't change the fact that this film is ugly really uh, it's ugly. I, I, I felt like i was like i was having glitter thrown in my face well that happens there's, a lot in the movie actually uh, yeah like like, <laughs> like literal, literal glitter in some cases there's a line of dialogue to the tune of we're, we're gonna get them by throwing glitter in their face it's like yeah i'm getting that i'm getting that right now you can stop <laughs> one of the images i really liked was they go through like there's like a desert mm-hmm. and the desert is all gold glitter and it yeah, was actually yeah. an interesting image. It was felt mm. like something you'd see in like Dune or I, something I crazy. Know, I, I wish the film had the wherewithal to sort of slow down and let us appreciate it. It's really yeah. sort of frantic. There's a lot of screaming. Mm-hmm. My favorite bit was um, the uh, evil rock and roll queen has hired a team of uh, subgenre bounty hunters. <laughs> so we have yeah. some K-pop trolls, and there's some reggaeton trolls, and there's a smooth jazz troll. Oh, and a yodeler. And, the, and a yodeler, yodeling troll. The smooth yeah. jazz troll is probably the funniest bit in the movie. Smooth jazz is pretty good. When they play smooth jazz, it causes the trolls to hallucinate, which is a little bit <laughs> It's so smooth. I can't see the reality anymore. That part made me giggle a little bit. But yeah. apart from that, it's just the jokes aren't that funny. No, The messaging totally is not clear, and it's just messaging... not aesthetically pleasing at all. I think, okay, I'm going to say two things with yeah. that. Okay, it's not that funny. No, I laughed sometimes, but mm-hmm. I hesitate to tell you what the jokes were. Okay, probably just a funny image or a weird, surreal thing here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember having a generally good time. Um, messaging is unclear. I don't think it's so much unclear as it is kind of general. Mm-hmm. Um, the messaging is pretty positive, and I can be the kind of person who, because Kids' movies are designed to be absorbed by children very just unquestioningly. So if a kid's movie has troubling messaging, even by accident, Mm -hmm. I tend to notice it and critique it pretty harshly. 
it's a matter of taste. Mm-hmm. I think it's in poor taste to teach kids bad lessons. Um, but we'll, we can talk about that. You may disagree. But this one's pretty pretty harmless and actually, at best, a little smart. Um, but uh, what it boils down to is I actually do like the aesthetic of this movie. I agree it's too frantic, and mm-hmm. it would have been nice if it could have slowed down a bit. If this movie was ten minutes longer, but with no extra plot, yeah, probably would have been better. Like mm-hmm. I think we would have at least... Just like, extend the scenes well, just by a like, every time few they, seconds here or there. Every time they go someplace... It looks different and kind of neat, and mm. I would like to see more of it. Sometimes I feel like I get the gist. Sometimes, yeah, that looks pretty cool. Why weren't we there more? That, that looked kind of neat. Mm. I'd like to see more of Funk UFO Town or whatever. <laughs> like, that's kind of cool. You know what this movie actually made me wish someone would do? Mm. I firmly believe, and we talked a lot about video game and movies on this podcast, and we've got mail. That the movie, the video games that would make the best movies are typically the video games that weren't a hit. Yeah. Because a lot of the hit games tend to be, you know, sort of universal in general, like war and like mm. hitmen and zombies. But I think the weirder stuff would probably make better films. And one of the things I think would make a really fun movie is a video game called Brutal Legend. Oh, which, yeah, it's the um, Jack Black game. Yeah. Uh, well, Jack- they, they kind of did that. They called it Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. No, it's different, but it's different. I right. see what you mean, but right. like it has the same vibe. Brutal Legend. If you didn't play it, it's still available on like a lot of like downloadable services, like on PS4 or whatever, like that. Mm. But it's really fun. Uh, Jack Black voices a roadie who dies in, or seems to die in a very surreal onset accident. And gets transported to a fantasy land, but instead of being like Narnia, everything stems from like heavy metal album covers. So there's giant mountains of skulls and like pickaxes and like uh, battle axes that are also mm-hmm. guitars and shit. And he has to not save the day because he's a roadie. He doesn't get the limelight. He has to help other people save the day. (laughs) So he is like, he's Mm. finding all of these like rock lords who are played by people like like Lita Ford and shit. Mm. And yeah, he is helping them save the day in these increasingly epic battles. Um, And it's just got a good sense of humor. And I just, I like. And this, this. Reminds you of trolls somehow? It does, because the heavy metal trolls are basically from that universe, but it's nowhere near as cool. Like, I would like, I like the idea of heavy metal as a fantasy aesthetic. And I just feel like it's been explored twice recently, but they're on totally different ends of the spectrum. There's Mm. Trolls World Tour and Mandy. And somewhere (laughs) in the middle, there's there's a a hard PG-13 brutal legend that could be a really cool movie Uh. that we could all enjoy. And I just think that's a funny dichotomy. Yeah, but well, yeah, if you, if uh, we can move on to a movie that you that deals with heavy metal, but you might not enjoy, can we move on? Uh, Do you have any sure. other, other words to say about Trolls World uh, Tour? I, I clearly liked it more than um, you, but let's not pretend I love it. All right, all right, yeah. No, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like okay. it. I'm, I feel like it's just another thing to annoy parents. Just now, you can do it at home. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can always do it at home, but now you can do it at home faster. Yeah, you can do it at home three months earlier. You can do it at home faster three months earlier, and you have you can pay extra for the privilege of doing so. Um, Well, hold on, I'm real fast. I want to talk about that price point. It's twenty dollars to rent Trolls World Tour. You don't get to keep it; you get it for a few days. Mm. For one person, that's a ripoff. 
uh-huh. for a whole family. That's true. That's a deal. That's a great deal. Uh, we we have all been to a movie theater either with our families or around families, and you would. I don't have kids, but I've been behind people in line. It's like two parents, three kids, and tickets cost them up to a hundred bucks. Mm. That's insanity. No wonder people don't go to the movies very often anymore. 20 bucks to see a brand new movie your kids actually like are hyped to see mm. and that gets that gets the whole family in that's a good deal. So for some like trolls that makes sense. I don't think especially given like how we're not supposed to all be going over to each other's houses too much. Mm. Uh this model will necessarily work for non-family friendly genres. Yeah, yeah, I think for something a whole family would go to see. Yeah, this is probably going to do okay if there's enough hype and the movie's big enough. But like, I don't think like the Invisible Man would do well with this model. Which the Invisible Man was on that model too. Well, but, it, yeah. it was in theaters. It had been in theaters for a few weeks, and That's then true. it got put out. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't need to make all of its money back. It already made its money. Yeah. Like everything else was just gravy. Trolls is only making money pretty much this one, on yeah. digital. I'm they. And Universal has even said, yeah, we're the number one VOD release in history. Cool. You got any numbers to back that up? Yeah, we're the number one. <laughs> number one is the number we got. Yeah, they're not giving us any numbers sharing. about how many. Like, it, maybe that, it is the biggest VOD release ever, but this well, movie cost over $100 million. How much did you make? Mm. That's pertinent information. Yeah, I, we can't really decide that this is a new yeah. paradigm if that's not actually mm. working <laughs> so the fact that they're not releasing the numbers and saying we made 120 million dollars means they probably didn't make a lot of money scott mendelson who writes a box office uh, analysis for forbes yeah who he's, really he's, doesn't have a lot of material because, right now uh, like he wrote a really amusing article called uh, james new james bond movie opens in zero theaters to zero dollars you know worst like, james bond opening yeah. ever because no time to die was supposed to open a week open ago. Yeah, yeah it was supposed to open at this time um yeah, I, I find I'm not sure you know if this is going to remain tenable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can all speculate about if this is the future of film releases. Um, maybe it will be the impetus to get studios to cease their pattern of high risk, high return. That would where, be nice. where they're you know not dumping three hundred million dollars into a single film, hoping they get a billion on an opening weekend. Yeah, we just we just threw uh, all of our support behind uh, tent poles, and yeah, nothing yeah. else will keep theaters alive. And it's uh, not a good model. Maybe this will open the door to cheaper films, a greater variety of films, a lo- low risk, low return, and. Everybody benefits, audiences and studios. So uh, I, I know a lot of people are saying, like, oh, God, you know, can movie theaters survive this? And I'm like, this was inevitable. Maybe not the pandemic, mm. but all of Hollywood and the whole theater system as we know it was one lousy summer mm. away from dying. Yeah. Just one lousy summer where there's just maybe only, like, one or two hit movies and everything else tanks just through lack of interest or oversaturation or bad word of mouth or something. Mm. One three-month period in the summer where everything that was supposed to be huge tanks, the whole industry collapses. Every studio loses money. Every movie theater can't keep up. It would be over. Mm. So we need to move past that model if we're going to survive. But anyway. yeah. So tell me about this other uh, heavy metal movie. Uh, the other heavy metal movie is called We Summon the Darkness. Do it we is, now? It's a slasher film. Uh, it is made by Mark Myers, and it stars Alexandra Daddario, uh, who is... 
probably known best for uh, she was in the Percy Jackson movies. She played the young Athena. Mm-hmm. She was uh, on uh, she was, True Detective, which was very popular. That's show. right. She was on True Detective. She's she's been around. She actually has a pretty good pretty good career. She was in uh, she's been in a lot of bad films. She was in Baywatch. Mm-hmm. Um, Not her she fault. Was in, she was in Texas Chainsaw 3D, which I think is a film only you and I like. Um, it's fun. It's, it's stupid. Uh, and it's it really, really stupid, fucks up uh, the whole timeline, but. But yeah, this is a, a slasher film. It's set in 1988, and uh, we meet a trio of young women who are on their way to a Merciful Fate concert. Remember Merciful Fate? No. <laughs> I remember Merciful Fate because uh, Beavis and Butthead used to rip into them. I don't know who uh, they are. They're a metal band. Hmm. They're like hard, harder edge, like a little darker death metal-y kind of band. Merciful Fate doesn't sound like a death metal band. And and it's I, I pronounce it that way because there's a Y in it. Merciful. Not, yeah, not merciful, very, but merciful fate. It doesn't sound very metal. And uh, in, in the... It uh, sounds new metal. And in, in like. the heavy metal parking lot outside, see what I did there, uh, they, they meet a bunch of guys who are also big fans of Merciful Fate. It's like, yeah, man, we really love metal. Yeah, we love metal, too. And they go to God, the Merciful Fate that sounds fate like the decline concert. of Western civilization right there. I know, isn't it just... Part two. That was the metal years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> part one was about punk. Uh... See, see those documentary films, by the way, The Decline of Western Civilization and Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Those are excellent films about the metal, the punk and or metal scenes at the time. Slight, uh, slight tangent. Uh, one of the things I live for mm-hmm. is to just be around when someone says the words, I am curious, so that I can add yellow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're also the one who likes to say, can't we get beyond Thunderdome? Uh, now, let me tell you the Rangoon version of this joke. <laughs> can't we get beyond Rangoon? That's a, that's a funny joke for people who under, know what the movie Beyond Rangoon is. Uh, anyway, in uh, We Summon the Darkness, these kids talk a lot about metal, and they have conversations about metal, which is clearly trying really hard to reach some sort of really knowledgeable, peak Cameron Crowe, Richard Linklater-type conversation music knowledge. But you can tell that the screenwriter is like, Looking up stuff on Wikipedia on the fly is, is about it a Metallica. Piece? Yeah, it's set in '88. Oh, okay, uh, that yeah. I did. That didn't come across. Okay, yeah, I, I, I said it. it was set in '88, and um, and uh, Alexander Daddario says, "Hey, why don't we all go back to my dad's place and continue the party?" And the guys are like, "Yeah, we'll do that." And they go back and they start drinking beers, and uh, it is very quickly revealed that the three young women are actually horrible serial killers. Who are going to oh. kill these guys? Oh. And, and it turns out they're involved in uh, this ultra conservative Christian cult. Oh, led by of all people Johnny Knoxville, who oh. who is actually pretty good casting for a televangelist if you think about it. I buy it. Yeah, he, he, builds, is, he builds a cult of personality. He's got, yeah. Just he's got that energy and that look about him. You put him in a white coat, and yeah, he looks like a televangelist. Uh. Look, I get off the thingy. <laughs> the first half of the movie is mostly just that conversation, the sort of talk about metal, and it's not nearly interesting enough to justify its existence. And when it finally takes that left turn into slasher territory where people are chasing each other with knives and clubbing each other to death and trying to poison each other in, in this remote, rich cabin out in the woods, or it's a mansion out in the woods... It just becomes really boring. It's well, like it's such a the, like the tedi- the most tedious version of slasher where people are just sort of screaming at each other and stabbing each other in turns, and there's no guess, like shock or wit to the kills. Well, I mean, again, I didn't see this one. Hmm. It sounds like they're trying to subvert the obvious, you know, horror crutch of uh, 
heavy metal monsters. We just talked about the whole heavy metal horror subgenre yeah, and how yeah. it's always about heavy metal is actually bad. But ah, here the Christians are bad. Yeah. That's also a cliche now. Well, and also, um, it, it gives the metalheads like a chance to you know, explain to these ultra Christians why they use anti-Christian symbolism, like in metal, why all that Satanism and upside down crosses and you know, worship of demons shows up in heavy metal. It's yeah. it's not necessarily. I mean, maybe there were some like actual Satanist metal bands, but it is just uh, essentially a way to subvert the dominant paradigm. There's it's a, a, a way of criticizing ultra conservative Christianity. There's a there's a line that Alonzo Duralde, film critic, has used mm. before, which is there used to be a culture to be counter to. Yeah, yeah. There was a time when like conservative. Like white America was uh, just back cons- in the Reagan years. Mostly, well, even before that, yeah. from like from like the forties, fifties onwards, like the, the majority of like the American culture that we know, hmm. like it was very, very homogenized on television hmm. and in our culture across the board. And so, if you subverted that in any way, you were seen as edgy and like threatening the status quo. And yeah. I think from like people sought to be on the outside. Yeah, and I think from like the '90s onward, like that status quo was kind of irrevocably changed. And mm. now, at the very least, in popular culture, it's not really that edgy to undermine that. It's actually well, in fact, you're you're criticized as being an edge lord or no. uh, you know, trying. Well, if you don't try, have you know, get, try, trying to get negative attention, you're trying to subvert. You you don't like the popular thing. You're just being a dick for the sake of it. No, well, if, I mean that that does happen. Of course it happens, but, you know, I feel like that there's not a whole lot of, uh, I'm not a young person. Of course, I don't have access to this stuff. All of the subcultures sort of moved online, so I don't really have a line on what sort of the central thrust of the subculture is these days. But yeah, it feels like, and I came to this conclusion kind of recently, it feels like subculture is like that alt-right conspiracy bullshit that you see online. That's what's that's the that's the subculture. That's the thing that's fighting against the status quo right now. Well, and that's kind of gross. Well, and that became the status quo when mm. you know certain well, people got elected. But mm. I I feel like that a lot of the stuff that used to be subculture, stuff like uh, or, or counterculture, stuff mm. like cartoons, yeah, stuff yeah. like parody, stuff mm. like um, uh, superheroes, comic books. That used to be counterculture. That used to be looked down upon by the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, and it was and, great. We liked it that way. Well, we did and we didn't. We were also frustrated that we couldn't get some more acceptance and that we were constantly having to fight. No, I don't know about you. I don't look for acceptance. No, when you're young <laughs> and it's frustrating that people don't see art where you see art, you mm. do want to share that. So I understand fighting for greater acceptance, but at some point in the last 25 years or so, I don't know if there's like a specific moment to pin it down, mm. but... At some point, that just became the culture. I think yeah, it was probably yeah. around like summer 2008 or 2009. Oh, no, when, it was much earlier. Than no, I think that. it was when but, The uh, Dark Knight and The Iron Man came out the first mm. th- at the same time. Oh, yeah, I think that so. was when it was just solidified. Just mm. boom, this is the culture now. You either get on board or you get out. And now if you don't like superhero stuff, now you're the ones who are just like, you're trying to subvert the paradigm. Away with you. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's good for... We, it's good. You were that once. I remember it. I was yeah, this, there. It was like 15 years ago. It's, it's what the re- fuck happened? It's been really painful to like talk to people my age who have sort of felt the sea shift and got 
like used to take pride in the fact that they were outsiders and loved the fact that they were outsiders. You know, I went to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We didn't give a damn about the mainstream. The whole yeah. point was not giving a damn about the mainstream. Yeah. And now it has now it has episodes of Glee. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the mainstream of Rocky Horror has been a painful thing to witness, yeah. but yeah, the, the whole and even you know when you started complaining about how things sort of sold out and went mainstream, you were branded a hipster. Yeah, and you, you were, sold you were, out, yeah. man. So uh, this is set in. Uh, to bring it back around, We Summon the Darkness is set in 1988 when that was still sort of a thing and people who are going to metal concerts were seen as sort of like counterculture people and how they were actually... This, this is about a culture clash that doesn't exist anymore, but yeah, at least it reads on a plot level. Yeah. It's just not a very interesting film. Well, I wonder... I mean... Metal is still around, but it's not the not cultural. Long. I mean, you can still like, hear yeah, metal there, if you want, but like Mastodon Records, yes. Yeah, but uh, my my point is this: as a cultural force, it was huge mm. for about a decade, give or take. Mm. And, and then Nirvana happened, and yeah, it kind Nirv- of died. And... Nirvana shifted the, the the whole what we saw of as rock, and and mm. others as well, Smashing Pumpkins around the same time, whatever. But is it nostalgia? Is that what it is? Do you think they're trying I, to cater onto that like Stranger Things kind uh, of vibe? I, or? I, I think so. I mean, that's what Onward was doing after yeah. all. It was sort of tapping into that sort of uh, I, I compared it to like a, the Ralph Bakshi cult, like the kids who were really into metal and Ralph Bakshi and D and D used to be so the cool kids. Like, yeah, it used to be the cool kids. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, again, cool used to mean you didn't care about the mainstream. Uh, but unless you were mainstream, in which case that you were cool. Well, whatever. Cool was always subjective. Let's just <laughs> it doesn't have a definition. It's kind of well. It's a point. It's subjective. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd say it was going for the nostalgia buck if it had more authenticity. Mm. If you know, it understands. You know, it gets merciful fate right, <laughs> and it does have a few shout outs to sort of like the earlier members of Metallica. But I feel like it's really trying to, if it was really trying to revel in that culture, it would be throwing a little bit more at us. It would be giving us, you know, a, you know, let, let's pop in my iced earth cassette or, you know, some, <laughs> some other like really ob- obscure metal band from the, the late eighties that they could have talked about. It's like, Oh, I hear this. They do say uh, Metallica's next record is going to be great. And of course their next record was the black album, which indeed is one of the best which albums is ever. One of the best metal albums ever. If, uh, of course, Metallica I, I, I did like hear. three of those. Pardon? Well, Master Puppets and Ride the Lightning are two of the other and, best and, metal and, albums. And Injustice for All, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Metallica was on fire there I, for a while. If I recall, and some Metallica fans might correct me on this, but uh, before it was, they just released it as the Black Album, mm. the original title was going to be Metal Up Your Ass. <laughs> that I've never heard. And, and I've it, never there heard was that even, before There was even life. artwork. I've seen Metal Up Your Ass t-shirts. It's in Metallica. <laughs> and it's like this really horrible, dingy, gross bathroom that's all filthy. And there's oh a toilet God. right in the middle of oh, the picture. That, no. And there's a fist holding a switchblade knife sticking straight up out of the toilet. Oh, that's terrible. And the title of the record was going to be Metal Up Your Ass. Okay, if that's true fair enough but that really doesn't seem like the kind of stuff Metallica ever did no that's that's I wouldn't put that past Iron Maiden but uh, no no there's a lot of if you look there's actually a lot of really fucked up heavy metal album covers absolutely that are like there are trying to scare the shit out of yeah, you or gross you de- out yeah death metal once you get yeah, yeah. sub genres but Th- yeah. that's fine but that's Metallica never really did that like I think they had no. skulls on some of their shit but like that's it like they were pretty all, all of they their- were kind of the classy heavy metal band <laughs> from early on yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I dig Metallica. They, Metallica was too cool to do music videos, and when they finally did one, it was the most depressing music video anyone had ever seen. 
And they actually like had trouble like airing it on MTV it was because for it, one, right? Yeah, yeah, it was for one, and it brought everybody down. Mm. And you can remember DJs afterwards going, mm. but anyway. Here's the new Madonna. She's dancing. <laughs> because Metallica... Darkness imprisoning me. Yeah, okay, okay. Metallica. Turning that off. Turning that off. off. <laughs> Some girls. <laughs> they bought the rights to this movie called Johnny Get Your Gun, which is about a guy who goes to war, and his arms are blown off, his legs are blown off. And his face is his blown face off. His face is blown off, and he's... a like he can can't communicate with anybody anymore. He's just trapped inside mm. of his like shell. And it's all about how that's a living hell. Mm. Yeah. That's the film, that's... and that's the music video. That's the whole fucking music video. It's one of the most depressing things you'll ever see in your life. Darkness imprisoning it's me. It's also a great all fucking I music see. video. Absolute but it was defiantly, like, not trying to, like, be cool. It was trying to bum you out. Like, <laughs> well, and Metallica's songs are all about death. And, uh, yeah, just what, they're not typically about, wonderful. like, toilets. Like, that's not really their vibe. Anyway, maybe they did. I don't mm. know, maybe. So okay, we saw uh, the darkness isn't very good. It isn't very good. I, okay. I I wish it had maybe delved into metal culture a little bit better. There's but a lot in, to mine there. Instead, I feel like people just don't understand metal. Mm. You know, even though we have people like Jack Black trying to sort of bring it forward, and there is Tenacious D in the Pick of Destiny. It's like, oh, and Dio's in it. Okay, good. Yeah, but that's you so understand. playful though. That's not really what metal was about. It's playful, but you know those guys clearly understand metal. Right. Like those guys are real metalheads. Um, the, yeah, the whole scene just hasn't really been captured in modern film. Like we're we're looking at you know the hard rock trolls in a kids movie, and they're listening to songs that were available on Guitar Hero. Like that's that's the cultural memory now. What do you think? When because one of the one of the most popular genres that we really don't talk about as a popular genre mm. is the musician biopic. Mm-hmm. Good musician, great music, decent casting. Follow a formula, you got a hit film. Mm-hmm. And that's everything from Bohemian Rhapsody to, to Walk the Line to Ray, yeah, Straight yeah. Out of Compton. Many of which are good movies, some of which suck. <laughs> Straight Out of Compton is great. Bohemian Rhapsody, not so much. But they, you know, they're successful and they humanize the music and they remind people of how great the music was. They put it in context. When are we going to get one from metal and who is it going to be? Uh, well, gosh, who has an interesting I mean, story? That's the thing, yeah. like, because Metallica, they have some interesting story. I mean, like, the death of one of their members, but well, and also where's the, the arc, really? There, you know? is, there is a documentary film out there called Some Kind of Monster, which was about uh, how they had the producer, Metallica's producer at the time, I forgot who it was, some complete asshole. Yeah. Uh, the band was essentially ready to break up, like, for better. You know, they, mm-hmm. they were... They're right, they've been together for decades. They, they're done. Been, they'd been together for a long time. They'd made some of the best metal records of all time. It's like, well, we're going to call it a day. And essentially this producer said, no, no, you got to stay together. You got to stay together, man. And he kind of forced them into the studio said, no, you're going to work through this. You're going to make a record. And they made St. Anger, which is like the shittiest Metallica record. They have, uh, there's this whole bit in that documentary where, uh, they get like a band counselor. Yeah, yeah. They, and they it's get a, they get a shrink. They get and it's and it's clearly he's not, clearly not a good shrink because he's like intrusive mm. and he's glomming onto the band and they're just like we think we're ready to move on and he's just like no you're not. 
Yeah. And it's just like, that's not good. That's yeah. that's getting into a weird area, actually. You should not mm. be that possessive of Metallica. Yeah, now, Metallica is for all of us, man. Now, now, luckily, Metallica came back. If you can see Through the Never, their concert film, it's fucking amazing. I've heard that's good. Uh, if, if you can, and if you can get their 2008 record, Death Magnetic, they got Rick Rubin to produce that one. It's like, okay. they fired the old guy. Rick Rubin says, we're going back to the garage. Yeah. And he, like, strips out all of the, the production. Just It's just them, and they're screaming and playing their instruments really loud and it's awesome uh, we're off on a tangent here <laughs> we really did we're just talking I was just talking about is we need a metal movie biopic yeah. maybe we don't need it we're gonna get one mm. question is who should get it and who should get like the big well, the, the Bohemian thing is, Rhapsody push and I think the, the only is, one who has the do, music people remember uh, on mass is Metallica like Anthrax is cool, but no one remembers their music like in the mainstream. Well, metalheads know Anthrax. I, you know, it's probably yeah. Sabbath. We were, here's Sabbath what I, here's what I would like to see: an animated film about Evil Eddie from the Iron Maiden posters. Oh, that'd be with awesome. nothing but Iron Maiden music. That would be a great film. <laughs> that'd be fucking cool. Yeah. I would love to see that. Or, or maybe it's fun. not Evil Eddie; it's just Eddie. Is the the and and they ends up having to fight the Me- Megadeth guy with the yeah. I think the, you're the confusing with, with Evil Ernie. Evil Ernie, yeah. Yeah, which was a like a metalish kind of comic book. Yeah, I think Ed, Eddie was the guy from the They Are Maiden record yeah. covers, though. I like that zombie looking guy. Yeah, and, I had a lot of shirts. <laughs> They're all hand me downs from my brother, but I had them. And yeah. It was cool. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, not a great movie, but you know what is a really great horror movie? Hmm. Sea Fever. Sea Fever is pretty awesome. It's actually. Uh, the only thing like I'm really disappointed in it is mm. that is not a good title. That yeah. title does not evoke anything. It sounds it makes, like that could be a sequel to Catalina Caper. It makes me want to sing Peggy Lee. Yeah. Fever when you kiss me. But it's actually a very well crafted, genuinely creepy horror movie. And it stars um, oh, Hermione Corfield. Cor- yeah, Hermione Corfield and yeah. Dugray Scott and Connie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's an Irish horror film. It's directed by, let me look up her name. Um, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. Uh, N- Nisha Hardiman. Okay. I think it's pronounced Nisha. And- um, so Hermione Cornfield plays uh, a research scientist. She is studying various like undersea like creatures and mutations and parasites. But in order to get her degree, she actually needs to get like outside experience on, on and diving experience, experience yeah. because she's going to be a marine biologist. She actually needs to go into the ocean and she has no desire to, but she's got to do it. She's very buttoned down. She's very quiet. She, she even says, right. One of her first lines of dialogue is I don't do social. Yeah. But, but not in that sort of hipstery sort of way. It's actually very believable. Yeah. She just, the way she's she just uncomfortable it, yeah. around people. She likes being by herself. She doesn't like eat. Mm. Even when other people are nice to her, they're like having a birthday party at the lab. It's like, Hey, we saved you some cake. She's like, I'm good. Yeah, I don't. I don't want cake. Bye. Yeah, like it, which is fine. It does. It's it's basically just making sure we know she's gonna feel like an outsider on the ship. And she goes on the ship, and it's like a fishing boat, mm-hmm. and it's rickety, and it's got a cast of like not super eccentric characters. I think this is one of the things that the movie maybe could have done a stronger job of is sort of making every single supporting character pop the way that something like Alien or The Thing does, but uh, no, they're okay. I think they're fine. I, I think this is, you know, it's it's an Irish film, and uh, not that all Irish films are like this, but it does feel really subdued compared to something like The Thing. True. Uh, and I feel like all, all the actors are permitted to bring a lot of personality to their characters, even if they only have a few lines of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, I What I appreciate is that all of the characters, like, the characters don't play into cliche. Yeah. Uh, there's not like the one hot shot and the one funny guy and the right. one really main guy and the one stoic person. You know, there, there's not any, any, the people are all real, fully realized human beings. Here's the problem. And when the terror 
finally like, starts happening, nobody's arrogant. They're all terrified. I like that, mm. but here's my one problem with it. Mm. Uh, some of them start feeling interchangeable to me. And the, I think the, that's something so, that's like uh, there's like three bearded guys yeah. that are all kind of like look look a little uh, bit the same. A little uh, heightening some differentiation between the characters might have been a good idea. But anyway, it's got a really great sense of place. We're on this like wet, musty mm. fishing boat, and smell the mildew. Uh, Do Gray Scott and Connie Nielsen they uh, they run the boat and they're in dire financial straits. They can't pay everybody. They need to have a great day of fishing. They need to make a lot of money. Mm. And they found a ton of fish, but it's in waters where they're told they cannot go. It's not safe. There are whales there. There's reasons, legal reasons, why they cannot go into this particular place, which is where literally all the fish are. So Duke Gray Scott steers them into it anyway, feeling a bit desperate. And that's when they run into, yikes. The parasites. They start, something latches onto the boat, and at first they think it's like some kind of weird giant barnacle. I love the way they discover it, too, because, uh, you know, it's clearly a lower budget film. They don't have a lot to show, so there's not Mm. like the, there's a few really fascinating CGI shots of like tendrils in the water. And And they're bioluminescent, and they look really cool. And they figure out, you know, wait, and they go out into the water, wait a minute, it's part of a larger creature, but we don't see it right then and yeah. it's we like, only get a couple of glimpses of it it always looks very interesting but the way they picked their battles the, they knew we yeah, only the, had so many CGI shots the way it invades is they find a little sort of like melting spot in the hull of the ship and they start yeah. picking through it yeah it's like, it's come, like there's yeah. a section on the ship where like the texture of the wood is changing mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they start picking away at it, and all of a sudden, there's just this orifice it's like this, this little like pulsate. I gotta say, it looks like a little pulsating anus. Yeah, right on the other side of That's the really hole. That's really gross. Yeah, it looks really gross. And it's like this living thing, and they just sort of look at it. Is that a barnacle? What is that? <laughs> yeah. So they send Hermione Corfield needs to get into needs to do a dive in the ocean for her school credit. So just like well. Down you go. And she's like, wait, what? It's a thing out there. So she goes and she's like, there's some kind of weird thing out there. Well, you study mutations. Damn it. So she goes down there and what she discovers is it's not a barnacle. It is a series of giant tendrils Mm -hmm. with sucker mouths on them that have attached themselves to the ship. And although they're able to finally break free of it, the sucker barnacles... Have left, left something in their water. Yeah, like their like really, their freshwater supply. These like really gross little parasites, tiny little black worms, and they're gonna like and they can like work their way into your body through any sort of orifice or cut you have. Mm. And there's a scene that is interesting because it's very clear, and and I also apologize if I'm butchering the name. Uh, that uh, Nisha Hardiman, mm. uh, it's very clear she she knows she's doing the scene from Alien. Because right. it seems like everything might be okay, but the there's something kind of mysterious averted, going on. But yeah. we know it's a horror movie. We've encountered some sort of weird species that maybe it's a mutation, maybe it's alien. Who the fuck knows? We'll never find out. It's not that kind of movie. Uh, and so we're all just eating, <laughs> and we're having a good time. You seem a little feverish, dude. Are you okay? And it goes really bad. <laughs> but I'm not going to ruin this for you. It goes bad in a way I didn't see coming, and it goes bad in a way that I watch a lot of gory horror movies. Made me go, Hoo. Yeah, it's really gross. It's so disgusting. It's oh gosh, so disgusting. It's so disgusting. It's so nice to know that I can still be disgusted. Yeah, yeah. After, uh, there's something I hadn't um, seen, and it's not like the most unthinkable thing mm, ever, mm. but... 
it's just really gross and mm. scary, and I don't want that to ever happen to me. Cool. Thank you, Sea Fever. Yeah. When, when one of the characters says, uh-oh, I can't see, yeah, just brace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad fast. Uh, and, yeah, like I said, just like in, you know, a creature stalks you in a small location sort of movie, mm-hmm. um, yeah, things get sort of increasingly desperate. I do like that it's not like a single monster. It's something in the water supply, and they have to figure out ways to get rid of, uh, like, thousands of little tiny creatures that they can't mm-hmm. really see on the regular. And I like that there are different variations um, on the creature as well. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. one outside the ship, mm-hmm. there's the little ones, and what's going to happen if... Yeah, so, we leave them unchecked. Bad things could happen. And uh, just like Alien, I appreciate that the characters are all grown-ups. They're not young kids who are just sort of screaming at each other and panicking. They're trying to think this through, and when they're not thinking this through, they kind of deflate. And there's a, a scene or two of people just sort of sitting and crying because they don't know what to do. Yeah. Hermione Corfield is like the youngest character because she's like a college student. Mm. Um, but she's also the only one who's actually thinking about this in a larger context. So after people start getting infected, everyone else is just like, well, we need to go home. Mm. We need to go to a hospital. And Randy Corfield is just like, we need to not go home. Because we can infect other things. Yeah, it took about 36 hours for this guy to get infected and show symptoms. So we got to make sure we stay here for at least 36 hours before we even think about going ashore. Mm. And boy, is that timely. Because it's a bunch of people saying, hey, listen, we're just working class and we just want to go see our families and everything. We can just go, right? We can just nope. take that risk. No, you literally can't. A lot we're, of people could die. We're literally, you, literally quarantined right yeah, now. Like, and that is, you know, without seeming like really on the nose, because of course it's a coincidence. Mm. Pretty spot on. It's pretty smart yeah, that yeah. they were thinking about that conversation. They thought about it in the way that we're currently talking about pandemics. Because here's someone who's trying to make sure there isn't a pandemic. Yeah. And a lot of other people don't even want to consider that possibility. So the tensions run high. I like that people respond to it in different ways. Or there's depression. There's anger. Sometimes the people you don't think will be the angry one get really fucking pissed. Um, there's a lot of variation with the monster. I feel like the ending, though good, mm. I, I kind of wish we could have thrown him a little bit of extra money. And like, there's a bit at the end where mm. I'm like, I feel like this could have gone a teensy bit bigger and felt more like a big, almost uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man kind of ending, where like there's a oh, larger, wow. there's a larger realization or a larger uh, the, uh, image, but we don't really get there. Y- you want the movie underwater in that case? Uh, this, I, this, I need yeah. to see that fucking movie. Yeah, yeah, I can't um, believe I missed that. I, 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 I think it's already on streaming. But everyone um, keeps telling me it's good. I need to get around. To yeah. It. Um, no, I like I like the ending. I like how subdued it was. I like yeah. I liked how subdued the whole movie is. Yeah. Uh, they just know how to play with. Uh, an adult form of dread rather than uh, cheap thrills. Uh, the monster is not really seen, but they play that to great effect. And I do like that the characters react to this thing in kind of a mature way. Uh, it's the kind of horror film I always want these sorts of things to be. Yeah, uh, I see a lot. I see alien knockoffs all the time. I remember when the movie Life came out. Mm. Uh, not not uh, no, not the, the, not the one not life or life but life. The one with um, Ryan Reynolds. The one with, and, yeah, yeah. It's like it's it looks like the trailer made it look like it was like a, a stealth version of Venom. Yeah, like, yeah, like there's, there's an alien glob that kind of yeah. Yeah, wraps around you. It was an alien knockoff through and through. Uh, a lot of critics said it was an alien knockoff. 
I think a lot of people sort of bristled at the idea of calling it an alien knockoff, not realizing that that's merely descriptive, not necessarily a criticism. Yeah. Because Alien is one of the most ripped off movies of all time. I mean, it kind of defined a lot of things. I mean, it changed the way we did movie monsters. Halloween, uh, Dead End, and Emmanuel are the only other films that have been ripped off more. Uh, and dead end, we can only really point to because we do that other podcast only the best. Sometimes it's hard, or or lady for a day. Lady for a day is also you yeah. know, ripped off in TV mostly these days. There's a lot are. of movies that just sort of set a genre in motion or defined mm. a framework. Oh, it happened one night. Practically oh, every romantic comedy you've is ever a, seen, a remake of it happened one night, is a rip off mm. of it happened one night. Just because they found the mm. formula, they nailed it. And everyone else has been copying it ever since mm. because it works. Rocky is another one. Every sports movie after Rocky is either a remake of Rocky or a commentary on why we're different than Rocky. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. yeah. So this one, yeah, it knows where, from whence it came. Mm. But, but it's really stylish. It's super creepy. And it's hard to creep me out nowadays. Just because there's a lot of movies mm. where like they're competently made, but I just don't feel yeah, like they're the, the, going for that extra level of dread. Yeah, that, that and then the chest burster equivalent sequence is, is really first rate. Um, so I really hope uh, uh, Nisha Hardman has done like a lot of TV. I really hope she gets to do more movies. After yeah, that. She yeah, should, people should be really, throwing really, work away. Really good. This is clearly someone who has a lot of talent and with mm. a little bit more resources could do something really phenomenal. Well, she proved herself, and now this, so. this is the time to yeah get a bigger project and let her do some, something a little bit more her speed. I don't know what. She likes. I don't know. And I look forward to finding it. Whatever it is, give uh, her to, money. To clear it up, uh, this is uh, available for rent on Amazon Prime. It's yeah. not It's not on the part of the Prime membership. You have to pay extra. Same with We Summon in the Darkness. That's also on Prime. They're like, and I think it's $5.99 or $6.99. Yeah, it's like 5 or $6. Sea Fever is worth it. Sea Fever is sea worth, are worth it. Uh, yeah. And Trolls, as we already mentioned, is 20 It's available on several platforms. Worth can, it if you have kids. Uh, yeah, if you have se- several kids in, in a closed lo- closed spot, then yes. Okay. Uh, so we got a couple more movies we got to review here, and of all of these, uh, we've each only seen. Well, I've uh, seen two others. No, you've so. seen two others, and I've seen one other. So why mm. don't you tell me about Tiger Tail? Uh, Tiger Tail is uh, on Netflix uh, right now. It's a really wonderful story about a Taiwanese boy who's growing up in uh, with uh, under an oppressive Chinese regime back in I think the nineteen fifties when it starts okay um his his father's dead his mother uh or i think it's his aunt who's raising him you can do it oh no it's, it's his um his mother sent him to live with his grandparents who like live far away from the city okay and uh he meets us when he's a young man he meets sort of the love of his life and he's sort of Gets to uh, you know gets to know this young woman how they have this very freeing uh, kind of sexually liberated relationship in this very oppressive time and space and then we fast forward to the present day and learn how this young man who is really sort of free and earnest growing up is now the like strictest most oppressive parent to his adult daughter mm. that he could possibly be living in America and I think this is a really really wonderful story of tracing the immigrant experience about how you come to leave the place you've left why you left it the choices you made and how you come came to be the person you are due to the fact that you had to come to a new country mm. and uh the actor who plays the the young man uh as an older man his name is a uh, tima is terrific mm. uh tima you might know he's in 24 he was in arrival 
Um, oh, okay. I, I haven't seen the show The Man in the High Castle, but I, I, I see that he's in that. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like I know him or something. You, you'll, you'll probably recognize him. He has this pervasive sadness in all of his scenes, even though he's playing a very strict parent who's kind of yelling at his daughter a lot and is very emotionally distant. You can see that he's lost a lot. And uh, you saw that he had to sacrifice a lot. We get to see flashbacks as to how he couldn't be with the love of his life. And he had to sort of marry rich and come to America under duress and how he became kind of a workaholic. And uh, you do get to see that a lot of parents work really hard and deliberately... I don't want to say spoil their children, but work for a better life for their children so they don't have to worry about the kind of stuff they had to worry about. But that, of course, leaves them in a state where they're not really able to express that any longer. And all of that is detailed in very intimate and very sensitive detail in Tiger Tail by a director named um, uh, uh, Alan Yang. I haven't seen any of Al- other of Alan Yang's movies. He's a young director. He's younger than me. And... Uh, <laughs> This is happening more and more frequently. A lot of like hotshot directors in their Get 20s used are to coming it. up. Um, yeah, I previously uh, wrote a film called Date and Switch, which I didn't see. Yeah, and it's done a lot of, of TV. And it's kind of odd that uh, he's done a lot of TV, he's done a lot of these sort of like broad romantic comedies, that he would do something that feels actually really kind of sensitive, soulful, and authentic. Wow. Uh, and yeah, it was really... Uh, not, not blown away, but really impressed by Tiger Tail. Well, that's cool. And I man. really, really liked it. That's cool. Well, mm-hmm. I, I got nothing for that. I didn't. Okay. I didn't see it. Okay. Well, tell me about uh, mm-hmm. Love Wedding Repeat, which is weird okay. because it's a reference to a title of a movie that the movie didn't get. It, it's. I think it is supposed to be alluding to Live Die Repeat, Repeat, but I think it's really alluding to Lather Rinse Repeat, but. Uh, which is instructions on shampoo bottles that everybody's right. familiar well, with. Well, maybe Live, Die, Repeat was uh, was a reference to that, too. Yes, it was. That's what I was saying. Well, Edge of uh, Tomorrow is a movie about like going back and doing like different versions yeah. of reality. Well, and he, isn't he, that kind of what this wedding movie is about? Did uh, I hear that correctly? Yes, it is. Kind of. Um, this one was uh, written and directed by the same fellow who wrote uh, Death at a Funeral. The original, oh. the original British Death at a Funeral, which was directed by Frank Oz, which is a, a broad theatrical farce with a lot of slamming doors and misunderstandings at a funeral and everybody's yelling at each other and everybody has a single personality trait and it all culminates in this big, sloppy comedy of manners. I've never seen it, either version. I didn't see the remake. It was remade in America with Chris Rock. It was directed by Neil LeBute. Yeah. Uh, he did the, this really broad farcical remake. Uh, I didn't see that one, but yeah, this one isn't is... Isn't Peter Dinklage in both versions? And he plays the same character in both yeah. ones, yeah. Um, Weird. Love Wedding Repeat is that same sort of broad theatrical farce, and all of the characters are really broadly theatrical, and there's all these characters that have one personality trait, and um, it's about a wedding... Uh, I'm loving the Sam passion in your voice. I can really I, I, sense I, your enthusiasm for this one. Sam Claflin plays uh, a man. His sister is the one who's getting married. The sister's ex is there. He's a drug addict, and he's there to break up the wedding, and there's other characters, best friends. There's a famous director there and a f- best friend who wants to get in with the best director, but he can't uh, bring himself to uh, to talk to this guy. And there's a, a, a goblet with a sleep, sleeping powder in it that's being passed around, and we don't know who's going to get it. And, of course, the wrong person drinks the sleeping powder, and he no. acts really funny. And then there's another character who is terribly insensitive about the size of his dick, and that's all he can talk about. And there's another character who wears a kilt, and that's his funny thing. And there's some uh. awkward characters. Well, they won't. They kiss because they're so awkward. And they're so well together, and it's just so tiresome. <laughs> and... 
This takes more than the first half of the movie to establish all this stuff. Oh, and and uh, and the Sam Claflin character, of course, is has reunited with an old flame, and his story is that he might get together with his intended, and his intended is played by Olivia Munn, who an American actress that Americans might recognize. Got it. Uh, more than halfway through the movie, everything goes wrong. Everybody, you know, wrong person takes the drugs. Bad truths are revealed. The entire wedding falls apart, and and somebody might have even died. Wow. And then we get. The big twist. What if that's not what happened? And we rewind the beginning of the story. And then we play it again differently and somebody else takes the drugs. And it plays out pretty much exactly the same. Like different things happen, but there's not something so dramatically different. That Maybe that's the point. Well, maybe so. And then that's all we get. Just one difference? One difference. It's That's not, it? It's not like sliding doors. I was just about where to, we get to Where doors. we get to see the two things happen, simul- like the two possibilities happening simultaneously, and we cut back and forth between the two universes, which I think is a really ingenious approach. Sliding Doors is actually a really well-written movie. Can we talk about how Sliding Doors, like, very gradually became a classic? Well, it hasn't. It's. I think a, it has. It's a notable film. I don't think people uh, have discovered it. It's right for not rediscovery, just discovery. No, um, I just think it's something that like it was a small little like high concept romantic movie mm. in which uh, if you've ever seen it, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow plays a woman who's dating a guy, uh, and it's basically just in one reality she gets to her subway train on time, and another reality she doesn't. And how that completely and, rewrites her romantic life. Yeah, in one in one version, she like comes home, and, and she catches her boyfriend with another woman, and she starts dating another guy. And in the other one, she's just stuck with her shitty boyfriend, and mm. you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And we just keep cutting between the two different versions of her life. It's very well made. It's, it's, it's a very good film. It's and well when, made, yeah. And whenever people talk about alternate reality movies, they always mm. talk about sliding doors. I think it's one of those <laughs> movies where, mm. even if it's not the best movie ever made, it's one of those things that just, like, nailed it. Yeah, Got the concept, nailed it. Around the same time, there was a similar film from Australia called Me, Myself, I with Rachel Griffiths. If I you ever saw that one. one. Yeah, where it's, it's the, I wish I had an alternate life, and it turns out there's two of her going about right. her business this so whole time. And then, of course, yeah. in America, we had Multiplicity, which well, uh, <laughs> Oh, you don't like Multiplicity? I think, I think Multiplicity is a, very is a good idea. I think Multiplicity uh, is a good idea, but, like, they... <sighs> So multiplicity. If you don't remember multiplicity, it's, Michael Keaton. It's not nothing to do with no, these no. Movies, it's just, it's just yeah. that there's different versions of Michael Keaton trying his life differently, and but that's like literal science fiction clones. Yeah, yeah. Michael Keaton is just he's got work, he's got family, he's got his own pursuits and ideals, and he never has time for anything. So he goes to a clinic where they clone him, and mm. there's a version of him that becomes very domestic, a group version of him that only focuses on work and gets very macho, and a version of him that's a clone of a clone that ends up stupid, mm. and. Um, the visual effects are very uncanny, especially for the time. Michael Keaton's really, really great in it. But you're going to take that huge concept, and it's just going to be this like sitcom plot. Yeah, and that's yeah. the problem with it. It just doesn't. It loses ambition right after the high concept. Well, it, it never it, goes further. It than does. That. It doesn't go further than four clones. And I guess yeah. like, like I could bring that back around to Love Wedding Repeat because here's the idea: if we're going to repeat the story and we're going to see all the various ways this farce could have ended up. Give me eight different versions. Right? Do it every ten minutes. Move it really quickly. Have 
one ending where like the entire mansion is on fire. Have another ending where unicorns exist all of a sudden. You did, know something. Did you ever see the? There's uh, an episode of Community like this. Did you ever watch Community? No. You you should. You'd like it a lot. D- don't. I know nothing about Community. It's it's just a very very funny sitcom. They do a lot mm. of really crazy things. There's one episode in one of the later seasons, maybe second or third. Anyway. All of these characters who are at a community college together, they're all adults trying to get their, you know, diplomas. Uh, They have study sessions together, and that's the whole framework. They're at someone's apartment, and they're, like, I think they're studying or they're playing cards or something like that. And uh, the pizzas come downstairs, and they they roll a dice to see, like, who will get the pizza. Mm. One is this guy. Two is her. Three is this guy. And the whole episode... Is every possible variation that could have happened as to who gets the pizza? Yeah, it's so just it just who goes downstairs to get the pizza, mm. and every single one of them ends in some kind of horrifying chaos, <laughs> including one where like people end up on fire and jumping out of windows and shit, and it takes like two minutes for that oh. to happen. It's hilarious. Is, if you've ever seen like the gif of Donald a, Glover walking with oh, pizza and, and everything's on fire, that's where oh, that's, that's from. Community. Okay. It's I've seen the gif. It's genius, and then later on, it's important. Because oh, we revisit one of the alternate realities. <laughs> it's so fucking clever. Yeah, if if you're going to call your movie Love Wedding Repeat, and your conceit is that you're going to have this twist where we get to see alternate versions of the same farce, yeah. do it more than once. That's really Because they, they just whiz the idea down their leg, and it's not funny enough to justify it. It's not a, a clever enough idea to justify it, and it's not funny enough otherwise. I'm actually amazed that we haven't seen more people just doing sliding doors again, but with different stuff. Like, take, take the wedding thing. Well, I'm sure like it, a wedding, it's, it's been done in, well, like, science fiction movies No, but, stuff, science, but that's but science yeah. fiction. I'm talking about non-science fiction stuff. Okay. Like, let, let's take like a wedding thing. Okay? There's a whole movie about a wedding. We've seen a million of them. Hmm. Uh, so, in, like, we have a prologue where there's a love triangle. And someone ends up with this guy and not that guy. And mm. then we follow their wedding day, but we also simultaneously follow what would have happened if she got married to the other guy. Oh, or yeah, he yeah. got married to the other girl, or whatever. And we just see both wedding days simultaneously, and we see them just how dramatic a wedding can be mm. and how totally different and how in one of them maybe they break up the wedding and someone ends up with somebody else, or maybe they do it in both, or maybe they're almost going to do it in both. There's so much you can play with. Mm. Weddings are fun and chaotic, and I love wedding movies. You ever see Betsy's Wedding? It's a classic, or at least it should be if anyone's seen it. But, yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's has a pretty good cast. Uh, the actress yeah. who plays the bride is really funny. Uh, her name is um, Eleanor Tomlinson. Oh, I know her from something. She, she was the damsel in distress in that really well-remembered film, Jack the Giant Slayer. That's probably it. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, she, and she's been on like, like a lot of British TV. She's yeah. really funny. She plays this sort of increasingly <laughs> frantic bride uh, very, very well. Sam Claflin is... Fine, like he's handsome. He's a, he's a handsome guy. Sam Claflin, uh, he, he, I feel like he's Olivia only Munn good have when good he's chemistry. evil. Like he was in uh, Nightingale, mm-hmm. terrifying in Nightingale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's yeah, great he's in really that. Great. But what he, he's he's got, he's got he's a little too snide mm-hmm. to be like charming. I, there he's is just a, got too much edge to him. There is a funny scene where uh, in in the alternate universe, he's the one who takes the sedative, mm-hmm. and Olivia, and he's trying to reconnect with Olivia Munn while he's slowly going to sleep. Okay. So he's trying to stay really alert, and she starts saying these really tragic things. Oh, and my mother died, and she had cancer, and it was really sad. He's like, yeah, and like fighting through his, <laughs> his like 
his fatigue is it, that that scene's pretty amusing. Yeah, well, that's a good setup. Yeah, you know, it's dramatic. You but shouldn't it, be falling asleep right now. What would it, happen if you? But did? it almost feels like something out of like an American Pie movie. Like yeah. it's really kind of crass the way it's presented. Yeah. So. Well, you know what's not mm. crass? Hmm. You're baking me crazy. Oh my god! This is not like this is not a Hallmark film, is it? Did you watch Hallmark? It's a sickness. You know, the first step is realizing you have a problem. <laughs> it's a Hallmark movie. I had to do this because someone, A, someone pointed it out to me. Was it Alonso Duralde? It was not. It wasn't. No. Oh, Although when I told when I told Alonzo I was watching it, he like gave me like a thumbs up on the text. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's enabling me, and I appreciate that. But in all fairness, I'm I yeah, helped start his obsession with Hallmark. Alonzo as well. and I are going to have a talk. At okay. Some point. So you know how like we cover uh, Hallmark Christmas movies here in critically acclaimed because it's like a really popular subgenre. Oh, I remember. Okay. Thank you. It's uh, hard to forget being smacked in the Hallmark, face. Hallmark doesn't stop making movies the rest of the year. And they're, like, seasonally themed. And right now we're in the middle of Hallmark's spring fling. So all of the romantic comedies are somehow involving spring. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, While you give your review, I'm going to make, like, quiet vomit noises. That's fair. All right. So, uh... <laughs> okay, seriously. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. I'm not going to be able to get through it if you keep doing that. <laughs> Um, so tell me about the bacon movie. Okay, so this movie is called You're Baking Me Crazy. Now let me explain the concept of that joke. You see, uh, in the movie, someone cooks with bacon, mm. and they are currently making somebody crazy because of their presence in their lives. But they also Ooh. cook bacon. So if we change the words in the title from mm. You're Making Me Crazy to You're Baking Me Crazy, we've got a little pun. Hmm. Anyway, uh, it's about food you know, trucks. A friend of mine in the seventh grade did have a T-shirt that said "Jamaican me crazy." Okay, that's not good. Uh, that's but, terrible. That's embarrassing. Don't don't ever tell anyone that. But again. he wasn't Jamaican. Exactly. He's from Beverly Hills. It's not cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, "You're Baking Me Crazy" is about food trucks in Portland or nearby Portland. They talk about Portland a lot, but I think they're in a nearby town. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and so it's about uh, a character who is supposed to be Italian, but a actor uh, is playing her who is anything but uh, named Cleo, and uh, she makes Italian sandwiches. People okay. sometimes ask her, "Can you make me something that isn't a sandwich?" And she says, "No, I make sandwiches." And it's weird. Anyway, she has a sandwich truck. <laughs> Can you make something that's not a sandwich? Fuck you. There's, sandwiches. There's literally a line uh-huh. where someone says, when will you free your food from the tyranny of bread? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love these movies. It's just <sighs> sandwiches. So she loves her sandwiches. She's making her sandwiches. And it, there's a new guy in town who drives in with his food truck. And he's he, he makes stuff with bacon. And there's a scene where his food truck, like, she's, like, on a corner and people are, like, in to, line to, getting to their sandwiches. To be fair, there are, like, bacon trucks. Yeah. yeah. That's, no, it's perfectly good. I, a lot of food trucks, if you're not familiar with food truck culture, uh, a lot of very good, like, cooks and chefs have their own food truck. You can so stay good, mobile. You can stay focused. You can... It's a good way to open a restaurant without too much overhead. Exactly. And there's a lot of really, really great food trucks out what, there. Yeah, watch the movie Chef. Yeah. Hmm. Fantastic. It's fantastic. All, all about food truck, starting a food truck. Yeah, and a lot of food trucks have a gimmick. Oh, we do everything with shrimp or whatever, and this guy just puts bacon in everything. He has, like, ravioli, but with bacon in it. 
Okay. We found a, a food truck we really loved once yeah. uh, that made non-witches. They were all Ooh. puns. They all names. Well, like, that's still yeah, it was, good. It, it was like Indian cuisine wrapped in a little, like it was a little Indian wrap wrapped in non That sounds and, delicious. And, yeah, they were freaking awesome. And yeah. The problem was they were based in Texas, so when oh, they were successful no. enough to, to open a brick and mortar, it was like in Austin. It's like, well, we live in LA. We can't go to Austin for these things, that so sucks. you lost our business. Got so anyway. No other choice. So there's a bit where like, so the guy, like, she, they're on a corner and they're selling their sandwiches and he drives up in his own van and he like opens his windows and everything like that and all of a sudden the chefs and the sandwich are like it's bacon like they know that people aren't going to be able to resist the siren call of bacon so the bacon truck is run by a guy named Gabe hey Gabe here's why you need to see this movie you invented a term Mm-hmm. called the Flawless Rescue Stud. I'm still hoping it catches on. Okay, so the Flawless Rescue Stud is sort of an adjunct to the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, mm. the character in a movie who kind of only exists as a plot point to be, like, the ideal mate for whoever the protagonist is. Yeah, you, Man- you, usually a, a, a wounded and or neurotic young woman mm-hmm. who finds a, who, a, uh, a man... Quirky. Uh, and quirky. She, and she's also quirky. Yeah, Manic Pixie Dream Girls are quirky. F- finds, like, the single, like, handsomest, most level-headed, most down-to-earth, and unbelievably available man who has un- no flaws whatsoever. Yeah. Like, and the, he only exists to improve her life. Oh, I'm sorry. You were talking about uh, Flawless Rescue Set. I thought yeah. you were talking about Manic Pixie Dream Girls. No, no. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. He's handsome. He's loves commitment. Mm. He loves giving gifts. He works out. He's, he's he's a he's a good dad. Yes, because he has a young woman. Or he's yeah, taking he, care of a young girl. Yeah. It's always a daughter. It's never but a son. But mom and died. It wasn't the, yeah. a divorce. So he's, he's always fine. a widower. So yeah, there's no divorce. And yeah. his baggage is that he lost his wife. So he's a little bit wounded. So she can hold his hand, which is actually only to her benefit, really. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's fixing her bikes and taking her car and babysitting and changing the oil in the pony or whatever else he does. <laughs> Just does all the chores around the house. Okay, anyway. He's not a widower and he doesn't have a kid. Otherwise, this guy is the ultimate flawless rescue stud. Because here's over the course of the film, she is terrible to him, and he's always down with it. Like she like orders like all of this extra food just to waste his time and to waste his money in order to like just sort of like sock it to him for being new and taking her business. Mm. And he just gives her he just gives it right to her. It's like, I knew it was you all along. Here's this free food. Bye. <laughs> Later on, uh, she's very impressed by a sandwich that he's invented, which is basically a BLT, but instead of tomatoes, it uses persimmons. All right. Not the worst idea I've ever heard. Sure, it so, sound in, incredibly innovative. But no, right. but it's fine. It's just a decent idea for a sandwich. And uh, she's doing social media because she's trying to like raise awareness of her food truck. And um, she's at a vegetable stand. She's talking about the persimmons. And she's talking about this sandwich that he invented. And it sounds like she came up with it herself. Mm. So now she's on social media talking about this awesome sandwich and basically taking all the credit for it. And you see the scene and you're just like, oh, that's where conflict is going to come in later. Mm. He sees that video and he's upset for about a minute. And then when she comes in and apologizes, he's just like, that's reasonable. Here, have a free sandwich. (laughs) His spine was surgically removed before the start (laughs) of this movie. I like your song. Oh, have a bag of money. I liked your song, too. Have a fat-free yogurt. (laughs) Um, 
they are both in a food truck competition. She is trying to win money so she can start her own uh, brick and mortar restaurant like her grandfather taught her. But in order to do that, she might have to make something other than a sandwich. Can she do it? He is also in the same contest, but he didn't actually try. He just got like people like voting for him because they like bacon. And so he offers to like not be in the contest in order to give her a better chance of winning because he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. And she's just like, how dare you? You think you'd win the contest. That means you're a bad person. And I'm just like, this is what we have for conflict? You had conflict right there. She was mean to him. Repeatedly. And instead, it's his fault for trying to be too nice. I get it. He phrased it weird. It probably wasn't the best idea ever. But what the fuckity fuck? Anyway, she wins the contest and they start a restaurant together. Oh, sweet. He has a brother in this movie. And I love the brother in this movie because, ostensibly, he's in town to visit his brother. Mm. He grew up here. Been gone for a long time with his food truck. He's here with his brother. His brother is trying to get him to stay. His brother trying to get him to stay never reads as, I miss you, bro. His brother trying to get him to stay reads as, we used to be lovers. Like, there's such a vibe between these two guys. <laughs> Every single scene feels like they broke up years ago, one guy's still um, holding a torch, and that's why I want you to move in. That's It's really frustrating, though, to have these coded gay characters in Hallmark movies mm-hmm. instead of just... Gay characters and Hallmark movies. I don't know if it's coded or accidental. I've seen a lot of Hallmark movies where just basic relationships get whiffed. Mm. And like, this is supposed to be romantic. You're friends at best. <laughs> like, I, that's that's maybe, all you got. These guys are supposed to be brothers. And they read as, as, as though they're boyfriend and boyfriend. That's not the worst. I mean, that's weird. No. Like, I guess it would be worse. But like, it's bad. Like, it's a weird thing to do in the movie. Anyway, um, it made me want a sandwich. So uh, let's review some movies uh, on the critically acclaimed scale. Your description does make me want a sandwich, but it does make me want some gin. <laughs> on the critically acclaimed scale, in which we review movies uh, from C minus to C plus, mm-hmm. C minus is below average. Could be okay. bad. Could be the worst thing ever. C is average. Yeah, most movies, mm-hmm. and C plus is above average. Either quite good or the best movie ever. Uh, Your bacon me crazy is. On the sliding scale of Hallmark, it's pretty average, actually. It's a C. It's it's exactly harmless, stupid pablum. It's exactly what I want. There's stuff for me to nitpick and complain about. There's stupid-ass lines of dialogue. It's got a bad title. Yeah. It's got an amazing title. You shut your mouth. Uh, so, yeah, it's a C. Okay. And I, it's, it, honestly, I was thinking the other day... Man, I kind of miss Hallmark Christmas movies while everything is so shitty out there right now. And then I'm like, wait, Hallmark still makes movies. I can just watch Hallmark. You, you know, come Christmas, oh, yeah. there's going to be a whole slew of Christmas in quarantine. I don't, think they're, I don't think they're going to want to remind us. Here's the thing that doesn't exist. Here's something that I've noticed in Hallmark movies. Mm. Illness does not exist in Hallmark movies. Okay. No one ever gets sick. Every time someone's like a widower or something, it's never... Cancer or something real. Yeah, it's always... They never want to remind you of life's actual problems. They want to remind you of superficial problems that can be solved at the holidays. 
So I don't think yeah. they're going to want to focus too much on the quarantine. Yeah. Maybe there'll be one, but I kind of yeah, doubt it. Making a Santa diorama is the, the yeah. most harrowing drama. Oh, no. The Christmas pageant doesn't have a tree. The dog ran off with the candy canes again. Oh, my God. I have to write an article yeah. about Christmas. The squirrels set the tree on fire. You know, I, yeah. I, it's all sad. making. Anyway, it's a C. Uh, love wedding repeat, Whitney. It's a C minus. That's too bad. It, it has. I, I like that idea. I like the idea of seeing a farce from multiple angles. That's what we did with Clue. Yeah. Uh, but no, it's it's not funny or witty, nearly funny or witty enough, and That's doesn't do enough with its idea. All right. It's a C minus. Uh, Tiger Tail. Tiger Tail is a C plus. I do like it a lot. I think it's not not mind blowing. You know, not like Criterion Collection level, but yeah, really. Uh, thoughtful drama about the immigrant experience. Okay, cool. Sea uh, fever. Sea fever. Also a C plus. Yeah. Uh, good, moody, really terrifying uh, horror film that has enough maturity and storytelling acumen to kind of distract you from the fact that it's an alien knockoff for a long time. Yeah, and like, listen, it's undeniably a little derivative, but mm-hmm. I think it has its own voice, and I think most importantly, it has its own scares. Mm-hmm. And there are moments in this movie where I was genuinely freaked out. That's hard to find nowadays. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got here. We summon the darkness. Oh, that's a C minus. Yeah, I, I, I like some of the cast members. We went off on this big tangent about metal and culture, but yeah, this this film doesn't tap into that nearly nearly strongly enough. Get Night Flight, the Night Flight uh, streaming app. Watch Heavy Metal Parking Lot. Uh, you know, watch uh, the Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, the Metal Years. You'll get so much more from the real thing. Okay, uh, and uh, lastly, Trolls World Tour. Uh, also C minus. Um, yeah, so a, a C minus. It's it's just really obnoxious, uh, ugly to look at, not terribly well written. Some fun musical stuff, and I do like the idea that pop is the thing that's boldlerizing culture. Yeah, but it doesn't really run with that in a way that makes it terribly interesting. Uh, I'm reminded of a gag on the critic. Mm-hmm. Where uh, they talked about how Siskel and Ebert grew up together and had their own film criticism stand on the street. It was like a lemonade stand, yeah. And uh, someone like tossed them a nickel and just said, "Hey, kids, how's that new movie? Mm. Uh, I think it's trite and stupid, mm. and nobody should see it." Like, and Siskel was, said, "I liked it." It was. Uh, it was. Um, what do you think of Samson and Delilah, boys? <laughs> Overblown and unwritten, sir. I liked it. <laughs> Thanks, boys. You've been of no help whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel. Like you just gave all of these critiques mm. about Trolls World Tour, and I'm like, I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> like, listen, it's mm. it's colorful. It's got a decent heart. Like, it's not like a bad message to it or anything like that. It is reasonably nice entertainment. I'm giving it a high C. It's not a rave review, Mm. but I enjoyed watching it. It was a nice little bit of escapism. Um, And um, there are elements of the design that I thought were very interesting and at their best kind of transportive. There's individual sequences, right. scenes, environments where I'm just like, okay, that's really fucking cool. I wish we'd see more of them. I wish I could have slowed down, but at least it had it. Mm. So I'm going to I'm gonna be kinder. But we need to move on. Speaking of, and, uh, speaking of filth. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so on so, uh, the critically acclaimed uh, streaming club, uh, again, we watch movies that one or both of us haven't seen before, typically films that are significant enough in some way that it feels like we should have. Mm-hmm. And uh, those films are selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And this time we picked a whole bunch of horror movies on Shudder. And the film y'all picked is uh, considered a cult classic. I 
happen to be, as much as one can be, a fan. Uh, it is also horrifically violent. Siskel walked out of the theater within the first half hour because it was so violent. Uh, it is William Lustig's grindhouse classic Maniac starring the great character actor Joe Spinell. Who you've seen in many other bigger movies. He I was think. in Godfather 1 and 2. He was I in think, Rocky uh, 1 and 2. He was the lone shark Rocky worked for. I think this might be his only leading role. He um, had three leading roles. None of them were in big movies. This is probably the most famous one. Yeah. But um, he's did a lot of character work. Yeah, this, yeah, directed by William Lustig, starring Joe Spinell. Uh, and it is about a serial killer operating in New York, and he has a very specific MO. Uh, he corners women, uh, murders them, takes their scalps, nails them to mannequins back in his apartment, and cuddles with them, talking to them as if they were his mother. Um, Yeah. I I was trying to do a little bit of research, and I sadly couldn't find really the origin of this, so I have to pin it directly on Psycho. But I was wondering what was going on in sort of the mass consciousness uh, where serial killers and their disaffected relationships with their mothers became really big in film. And as far as I can tell, Psycho kind of just kicked it off and it was continuing to roll as late as 1980 when Maniac came out. Yeah. Uh, well, now, there's, in- a, there's a lot of history of just blaming people's, and, and frankly, there's a lot of sexism behind it, but there's a lot of history of blaming men's mental health ills mm. on... Mm. Mom Rep- didn't love repressive me. moms. Yeah, yeah. Rep- repressive moms. Moms who were promiscuous, mm. and their sons saw the mom had sex, and so now I got to kill everyone. Mm. I guess, which I've seen in multiple horror yeah, movies, yeah, and, where and, just seeing mom have sex led to a guy becoming a serial killer. Mm. I'm like, that's it. Well, and in, in, in Psycho Four, uh, at the very least, they they went a little bit more nitty gritty, but that's kind of what it came, just what it boiled down to. Psycho Four um, is really underrated, by the way. It's 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 well made. It's not a bad film, actually. The, those psycho sequels are more interesting than they are. Henry for. Thomas great, is a fantastic young uh, Norman Bates. Indeed, he nails indeed. It. He and, nails and, it. and Olivia Hussey is fine. Um, yeah, I think she's as, great, as, actually, as Norma but, yeah. Norma Bates. Um, yeah. So I, I couldn't find sort of like the the actual like trends in psychology where a lot of horror films felt like they needed to explore this. I think this is just ripping off psycho more or less the sort of mommy issues, serial killer with mommy issues. Um, however, psycho at the time was seen as very kind of gritty is shot with a TV crew. It was meant to look really low rent. Um, it was black and white and yeah. Hitchcock had moved on from black and white for many years. Yeah. yeah. So. And, and yeah, it had, it's famous sort of like story twists, not, not withstand or aside for the time being, it was supposed to be, yeah, really kind of, uh, f- it was supposed to be really foul. It was constructed yeah. to be shocking. Yeah. It, it was a flushing toilet on camera for the first time in a major Hollywood film ever. And, and yeah, there was like stabbings and violence and a lot of really, nudity. Yeah. A lot of really horrendous edgy things for a mainstream film in 1960. Uh, you could say the same thing about Maniac. However, 20 years have passed, and what we consider edgy has to go a little bit further. Uh, has so, to go significantly further. So, Maniac is filthy, sweaty, grimy, dirty. It smells like dirty shoes. <laughs> like, the scent in that guy's apartment comes off of the screen. In, in waves and tough. Yeah. And you got to remember, Maniac is interesting. Maniac was shot in New York City. Largely without permits. Mm. Um, this is at this sort of interesting intersection between 
grindhouse cinema, mainstream cinema, and pornography. Yeah. Uh, the independent movie scene in New York City had a lot going on. Some of it, like, quote-unquote, legitimate motion mm. pictures, serious dramas, comedies, etc., taking place in New York City. There was a lot of low-budget horror movies. Like, it feels like Maniac is taking place literally on the same block as Basket Case. Which was filmed in New York in 82, or like yeah. 81, like about two years later. Pretty much the same time. So it's the same wave of yeah. that sort of exploitation uh, movie. And, thing, but or... it was also a lot of pornography being shot uh, mm. at the same time as well. And pornography, of course, uh, this was back when it was largely shot on film. Uh, and uh, it had a different aesthetic. And it's aesthetic that Maniac has a lot, not least of which because several supporting cast members in the movie are actually from pornography yeah, yeah at the yeah. time and you could see them mm. in various pornographic films when they're not playing a nurse in maniac mm. um so the plot of the yeah the plot of the uh, film is the, joe spinell oh, is what's the act? i've seen the nurse in something else the too. nurse the main not, not, nurse not a, who's a, like a, a victim a, yeah is uh actually been in other like mainstream movies the mm. nurse who says goodbye to the nurse we focus on like is just there for like one scene and then goes back in the hospital mm. she was in a lot of porn i was like okay she looks familiar, and yeah. like turns out she was in a lot of famous pornographic Her, movies. Uh, nurse number two is played by Sharon Mitchell, but yeah. um, Kelly Piper is the actress yeah, who, she's been who's, who's like the victim. I've seen her in a couple of films. And, uh, uh, and uh, okay, so Joe Spinell, uh, he's a serial killer living alone mm. in New York City. Um, he has nothing. Like, we don't even really see what he does for money. He's got it, but he's just living this sort of horrifyingly isolated ex- uh, uh, existence in which the only thing he has are the is, voices in his own is, head. Is his compulsion. Yeah. yeah, and so he goes out every he, night like and he think, does horrible things. I like to think he's the guy on the other end of the phone in Black Christmas. Like That's that's interesting that, thought. That's kind of a, those things kind of overlap in that for, way. For me, the movie I was kept thinking of when I think of Maniac is actually uh, Taxi Driver, which is interesting because Joe mm. Spinell's actually in Taxi Driver. <laughs> uh, but uh, Taxi Driver is, of course, Martin Scorsese's classic film from 1976 about uh, a Vietnam vet who is driving a taxi in New York City and his A is PTSD but also a social isolation and also his constant uh, interaction with the absolute worst part of humanity in New York City mm. starts just sucking away yeah. well, any semblance of sanity he has until he starts latching on to different people obsessively and mm-hmm. it ends of course in shocking violence Maniac is kind of like that in a way, but we're I, you know, cu- but he's he's not like he's just gone completely dangerously I, ill. I, I I disagree with you though. I think okay. I think a taxi driver is about a very specific kind of disaffection from the world, looking out at the world, seeing the filth, or maybe even misinterpreting it and finding. Uh, kind of a way to react to the world in perhaps unhealthy ways. Right. Uh, Maniac, uh, not Joseph Zito. That's the director. Joseph um, jo- the His character name. Oh, uh, is, Frank Zito. Frank Zito. Joseph Zito directed uh, Canon Films. Yeah. Uh, Frank Zito doesn't even really see the world. Right. He's not reacting to anything. He doesn't under he's not on any kind of wavelength. He goes out into the world and all he sees are outlets for sating his appetites. Uh, which it, for for blood. And there there's a, a really telling scene late in the movie where uh he's going on these like 
horrendous killing rampages, sometimes just in broad daylight. Nobody's even paying attention because yeah. New York is a complete pit at this point in history. Uh, in and the movie Maniac, the, at the very least. At the very least. No, and, and in real life. Well, this is, I, just, this I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, wasn't there. I don't want to cast too many dispersions, but that's you, the movie. The, I, I'm familiar enough with New York City to know that it was cleaned up at one point, And it's a okay. lot more family friendly now, whereas it used to be. Just a, a cesspool of filth, and um, Jesus. Well, I mean, you've seen Taxi Driver. I you've have seen, seen the way Taxi Driver. Those are also movies. You've seen the way it's been depicted in movies, even in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I know it's depicted as sort of this crime hole. I actually miss uh, that aesthetic. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. looks so good at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's and such a and great you know, and movie. Giuliani gets a lot of credit for being like the mayor who cleaned up New York. It's actually a much more gradual process than that. But a lot of people refer to like pre-Giuliani New York and post-Giuliani right. New York. And of course, Giuliani's a maniac. Has always been, but now it's really clear. Um, uh, not a not a uh, Joe Spinell maniac. No, a no, kind of maniac. Sorry, <laughs> just <laughs> should, so we're clear. Shouldn't, shouldn't use that <laughs> word, maniac. But yeah. but yeah, this is back in in sort of filth New York. So he's going out into the world. He's not really looking left and right too much to see if somebody's looking at him. He's just going to uh, into a room and finding a victim. Here's and where killing I... them because that's what his compulsion leads to. And there's a shot later. Let, let yeah, me, sorry, for that, a shot where. Uh, we sort of hear over the radio, like people are sort of yelling, oh no, there's this killer on the streets. What are we going to do? Everybody's getting really scared. It's changing the fabric of New York. And he like is not even acknowledging it. Yeah. He doesn't care the, about the fact that he's changing the face. He's not acknowledging it. He's, he's not, not getting he's a not thrill. Famous. It, doesn't, not... it doesn't matter to him. All yeah. that matters to him is slaking his bloodlust. And it is horrible just watch like living in this guy's head well uh, and of course that's the point of the movie well uh, two, uh, two things with that mm-hmm. uh one to go back to my taxi driver thing because i don't think i sold it very well mm-hmm. i think um there's obviously this element of someone who has lost their mind in an urban sprawl yeah. um i feel like taxi driver is a bit more nuanced because it gets more deep into the psychology of its protagonist but i think at the heart of both films at least what the audience is supposed to take away is we are all packed together like sardines inside this city and we don't know who everyone is we don't know what they do in the middle of the night Mm. we don't know what they say we don't know what they think we don't know what impulses they have and we know that some of them yes are violent there's crime Mm. it's a world so Maniac is about how somewhere in New York City there's someone who is so this scuzzy, mm. this uh, uh, depraved, and I think on that level there's an element of seedy realism to it that's really quite uncanny. Yeah, well, and I think well it's, that kind of guerrilla filmmaking grit. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Um, but you made another point towards the end of your talk about about things. the world doesn't care about what this guy's up to. He uh, he doesn't care that he's up to the world yeah, yeah. cares. He doesn't care what the world thinks about. What yeah, he's oh, that's doing my that's my other thing. Um, in the wake of stuff like the Thomas Harris novel, something like Manhunter, mm-hmm. uh, onwards, the serial killers became more respectable in films. Mm-hmm. They were treated as clever geniuses, seductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that no serial killer ever was those things, but uh, this is not the same universe where no, you'll find oh, Hannibal no, Lecter. Yeah. This is a universe, and this, this is, is one a of universe the, where you'll find Leatherface. Yeah, like, this it is, feels like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Th- this is the kind of movie where I watch Maniac, and I'm really scared that this is what it's like. Hmm. There's only a handful of serial killer movies I've seen where I feel like whether they're deeply accurately psychological or not. I feel like I have been invited into the world of a serial killer and I do not want to be here. There's nothing romanticized about it. There's nothing slick or mm. exciting. It's just 
horrifying. And it's this movie, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Mm -hmm. To a lesser extent, it's very good, but to a lesser extent, the remake of Maniac with Elijah Wood. Uh, Which I I haven't seen that one either. It's it's all shot from his perspective, like literally. Okay. So it's a bit of a gimmick, but it works, and it's very, very good. Uh, And The Voices, uh, directed by Marjan Satrapi, uh, Mm. starring Ryan Reynolds. These are movies that bring you inside the mind of a serial killer in a way that I think a lot, even though they do it in different ways, other movies are just unwilling to peer that deeply into the mind. You didn't see Matthew Bright's Ted Bundy, did you? I missed that one. I heard that that was good. That's another one that does it, yeah. Okay. and it's it's Matthew Bright. It's the same guy who did the movie Freeway. He worked with Richard Elfman, so he has a really good sort of trashy sensibility. Yeah. So it it does have this weird, almost like John Waters quality to it, where it it's concerned with the aesthetic of Ted Bundy as well as his just impulses. Um, what did you but, think uh, of what? Sorry. Yeah. What, what Maniac has uh, different from um, something like The Voices. But that it does it does have in common with Henry Porter of a Serial Killer and also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it feels like it's being shot by the killers. Yeah, like uh, if this, they could make their own movie yeah, about like, their like lives the, is what like they do. Like the camera is in the room with this guy. Uh, and it yeah, it feels like the film is really kind of... Like it's low quality film stock that they're using. Mm-hmm. Everything has kind of a, a little bit washed out quality in some scenes. Like they clearly want you know it's a professionally made film. They lit things. It's yeah, not William Lustig's so... a good filmmaker. He yeah. doesn't get a lot of credit for it, but he's made some really good movies. Maniac, go see Maniac Cop Two. Uh, Maniac, uh, Maniac Cop, Cop Two is One amazing. is good. I love Maniac Cop. Maniac Cop One is is fine, but Maniac Cop Two is where it's at. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this I uh, uh, he also did a. a some people praise it. I think it's a really lousy film called Uncle Sam in the late nineties. Uh, that, um, and that was, and that was, I think that was his last feature film it was like 98 or something. Uh, that was less stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did like a little mini documentary for mm. uh, a DVD release of opera, but like that was it. Um, yeah, he did Maniac Cop two, one, two and three. Uh, he did a movie called Vigilante, which was rather popular. He did a couple of pornographic movies in the early seventies. Maniac was his big sort of breakout mm. movie. And, it's easy to see well, why. It's it's hard to call it a breakout movie because this sort of film is really destined to stay a grindhouse because it is just so caustic uh, by by design. It's right. sort of it's like I really love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's the original, a, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that's just a really has the power to be horrible to this very day. Yes, and. Scary at the si- it, yeah, really, really scary. And I'm also really suspicious of the people who call it their favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel the same way about Maniac. You know, Maniac is... Uh, I'm really glad I saw this. I feel like I was getting a big heaping spoonful of the kind of filth that I don't get from movies a lot anymore. Yeah, I feel like I had seen a lot of movies these don't of, feel like this anymore. Yeah, I feel like I was... They don't feel this genuine and raw and painful yeah, I, and I felt like I, 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 I had eaten a lot of this kind of food before and I was missing that flavor of you know, this sort of like essentially raw raw pork that I'm just eating. Uh, you know that scene in the vampire movie where people just start licking a steak? Yeah. That's yeah. kind of what it's, this is. But it's been on the floor of a, like a, a hardwood floor of an apartment for a long time. Yeah, in, yeah. In something yeah, like that's Maniac. That's where we're at. Yeah, that kind of flavor is something I w- just wasn't getting from a lot of horror movies anymore. Even the older ones I was watching and it's really, 
I feel like a lot of this kind of grindhouse stuff has been scattered. Only guys our age, like mm. the cult movie aficionados of the 80s, are the ones who are really kind of carrying the torch for this stuff. And um, I'm glad that the people at Shudder are those guys. Yeah. Because they're, they're, somebody probably insisted or was really thrilled that they could get Maniac. And I'm really glad I finally well, saw Maniac, even though I was disgusted and horrified throughout the entire thing. Uh, there's a lot to discuss with mm. Maniac. Um, first off, uh, it's not that obscure like there's a lot of real obscurities from the late 70s and early mm. 80s uh that are of an ilk mm. uh with maniac maniac and uh, william lustig had a bigger career after this maniac has had several high profile home video releases maniac was a movie that was very controversial when it came out not so much for the fact that it's about a serial killer but because it was horrifically violent mm. this would have gotten an x rating for violence and they just didn't bother submitting it they just knew uh the uh, the visual effects, the practical makeup and blood and gore and head explosions uh, were done by Tom Savini. Who's in the movie. Who's in the movie. Mm-hmm. And there's actually this interesting scene where it's Tom Savini. He's in a car with a girl. They're like having this kind of charming moment where they're on a date. They're both about to be killed by Joseph Spinell. And and, and she's having an affair. She's like, yeah. my, my boyfriend can't find out about this. A little this. bit of drama. Yeah. A little bit of drama. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a scene, scene from any typical slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, first off, it's different because our maniac uh, is going to use a shotgun and he's just going to climb up on the hood of the car mm-hmm. and he shoots Tom Savini in the face. This scene is notable for a couple of reasons. One, this is where Gene Siskel walked out. He said, this is so violent, there is no way the movie is ever going to come back around and have anything good for me afterwards. So he was just done. Yeah. Uh, and that was simultaneously helped like build the legend of the movie, but also made a lot of people really not interested in it and really hurt it. He had a lot of power at the time. Uh, but uh, also notable, the head explosion in that scene is one of the more disgusting head explosions in movie history. Scanners is still number one, but this is at least <laughs> in the top ten. Uh, Tom Savini is the person who gets his head blown off. However, they only had one shot at this because the movie was so low budget that Tom Savini insisted on blowing the head off of himself. So Mm. in that shot, he's playing the maniac. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, because he's in a mask. He needed to make sure that the special effect worked without a hitch, so he needed to be the one actually doing it. Mm. So that's a fun little bit of trivia uh, right there. Um, but yeah, the violence is really horrifying. There's nothing... Uh, the camera never shies away, but the camera also never tries to make it look good. It's a panting, heaving, sweaty movie. Yeah. And you can just... It's every, like, room tone. You know, like, when, like, nothing is going on in a movie, but you can hear just, like, the room. Mm-hmm. You know, the refrigerator's on, something mm-hmm. outside the window. The room tone... Is Joe Spinell breathing? It gets really creepy and weird. And the other thing that I think really sets this movie apart, besides the gore, besides um, you know the firestorm, the violence set out, it was it was banned in Germany until last year. (laughs) Uh, uh, But uh, the other thing is Joe Spinell, who co-wrote the screenplay, is really fucking good. I think he's giving like a really completely unfettered. Like raw performance where he is not afraid to look disgusting. 
He is not yeah, afraid to let the yeah. character be vulnerable and weird and unwholesome, but also show that he can interact with society. There's this whole plot in like the last half of the movie yeah, where he's it. almost in a decent relationship with Carolyn Monroe, of all people. From Star Crash. Uh, from Star Crash, from Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter. No, from Star Crash. Which also, <laughs> Joe Spinell played the bad guy in Star Crash. That's right. And people, people liked Joe Spinell. If you yeah. worked with Joe Spinell, you worked with him again. Joe Spinell uh, came up with a story to this. He, he was one of, this is partly his brainchild. And um, I, th- I think, yeah, he just sort of had this dark impulse. He wanted to play a killer. And yeah. maybe in his in his mind's eye, this was going to be some sort of something like Psycho, or is like, this is going to be kind of classy, and it's going to challenge people and just be really aggressive. And I think they went like way overboard with it. And the lo-fi filmmaking just made it seem like something way more unsavory. It almost feels like a snuff film in certain sequences. Yeah. And uh, it it has this weird kind of semi-supernatural ending dealing with justice. Mm-hmm. Where, like maybe, he gets, where maybe, maybe he gets, he gets his desserts maybe from get, the ghosts yeah, of the people he's... Yeah, may, maybe he's getting his just desserts. That that scene scared the living fuck out of me. That scene is so terrifying. terrifying. I saw this movie for the first time on the big screen at the New Art oh, here God, in Santa okay. Monica. If memory serves, mm-hmm. it was a midnight screening where William Lustig actually showed up, and I think it was co-hosted by our dear friend Mark Edward Hoyk. Yeah, uh, who has been your partner on the movie trivia Schmodown? He was on Beat the Geeks, he, and he, he was... knows more about movies than most people. Yeah, I saw a bunch of like midnight screenings mm. that Mark used to host. I saw the Warriors on the big screen for the first time. I saw the Switchblade Sisters for the very first time, and I saw Maniac for the very first time on the big screen. This movie feels really small and intimate. It's got this kind of docudrama kind of style. Mm. On the big screen, it rips. Mm. It shreds. It is such a bitter pill. And I feel like there's a certain kind of horror fan. The kind of person who says, that's not horror. If it's not the most vile thing they've ever seen. (laughs) If it's not really bloody. If it's not really depressing. It doesn't have a huge kill count. You know, like, oh, Midsommar is in horror. Mm. Hereditary is in horror. Like, it is in horror. It has an evil demon clown. Yes, it's horror. I remember. I feel like Maniac is the movie to shut them up. (laughs) <laughs> like well, Maniac is horror. I, I, I imagine those are the kinds of people who uh, like probably know Maniac pretty well. Already. I would hope so, but I don't. Uh, I think some of them are quite yeah, young as that, well. That's true. Um, I re- I remember seeing an interview with the director of the movie Hatchet. I did all. Oh yeah, uh, Adam Green. I, I think that's right. Um, yeah. But he uh, he was trying to make Hatchet. He even cast Kane Hodder, who played uh, Jason Voorhees in the later Friday the Thirteenth sequels, as his killer. Yeah, it was, it was Adam to, Green. It was trying to create a slasher a lot like the later Friday the Thirteenth movies, just a straight up slasher movie. Yeah, uh, which were out of vogue at the time. This was the early two thousands. Uh, what was in vogue at the time were uh, torture films. Yeah, people being kidnapped and tortured and sexually assaulted in the most gruesome possible ways, and there's no hope for escape. That's where our heads were in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of cynicism. And, uh... Not even saying that's bad, but and it is he, true. He was showing this to some younger people who were being weaned on those types of movies, and they thought a slasher movie about this giant killer in the woods who was, like, ripping people's heads off with his bare hands and throwing hatchets in their backs. They didn't say that was... They didn't think that was really scary because no one was being tortured and no one was sexually assaulted. Oh, like, God. 
Like he, he like he even overheard First off, Hatchet's kind of a goofy film, so I understand it's, not finding it, it terribly it, it's, scary. It's but a little broad, but yeah. I, I remember first time I watched Hatchet, I kept waiting for the movie within a movie to stop. Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's, when you're watching, when it. you're watching a movie within a movie, and everything is just kind of fake, mm. and then it's like it's in order to differentiate it from the real movie you're mm. watching. Uh, I kept waiting for that in the first Hatchet, and just that tone was always there, and it always fell off. Hatchet Two got me. I thought Hatchet Two was a fun time. I, I didn't see Hatchet Two or Hatchet. Three for that matter. No, I didn't uh, see Three. Hatchet Two was pretty good. Um, of the fake movies I've seen in movies, like they start off with something really bonkers, and then they cut it, cut to the yeah. camera crew saying, "Oh no, he screwed everything up." I want to know what the fuck that thing was at the beginning of FX Two. Like, oh my god! There's right? Like, there's this like weird th- this like giant robot, gi- giant like- trans robot with like blue blood and a missile arm just suddenly appears and starts going to like blowing up cop cars and shit. What movie were you making? I, I don't know. I want to see. I don't know, but I want to see that movie. <laughs> Who would want to see that movie? Yeah, yeah. That, that's it's pretty awesome. Yeah. FX oh, was yeah. probably about Tom Savini, wasn't it? You mm. think they were probably inspired because he was, you know, you think? No, sure. Oh, I mean, he's he's always he's been a special effects guy for a long time. He's no, sh- but like with the original effects, a couple of my, like uh, my bosses' films. But yeah, um, yeah, he's in From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like Tom Savini a lot. Yeah, he's not an amazing actor, but he's, he, he's not amazing. He seems like a good guy to grab a beer with. Oh my but, yeah. god, I bet he has the best stories. <laughs> like yeah, just. Stay up late at the bar listening to Tom Savini. Talk. Below the line creatives have some amazing stories. <laughs> if you ever get, if you ever find yourself sitting next to like a Hollywood costume designer, even someone who works on TV, they got cool fucking stories. Yeah, <laughs> they know yeah. everything. It's amazing. Um, anyway, Maniac. Um, I, I'm gonna give my opinion, Maniac, and I'm very mm. curious, just like your final thoughts. Um, mm. Maniac is not a movie for everybody. When we announced that we were doing this movie last week, I warned you if you can't like if you can't handle violence, which reasonable, this is not the movie to watch because mm-hmm. it's not just violent, it's cruel. Yeah, but it's yeah. cruel with a purpose, I think. It's, and it's trying to show a serial killer story, you're trying to show crime and violence and depravity. Mm-hmm. In a way that doesn't truss it up, in a way that just shows yeah, it's, the absolute, just the the absolute filth and scuzz mm. of the human condition, mm. and I think it is so unflinching about that that I find this movie incredibly powerful, even though it is, of course, really gross. Yeah, it it doesn't bother to look away from the guy, and there's some integrity to be seen in depicting a character who is utterly beyond redemption. Yeah. He, he, like you said, he can interact with humanity, but it's not like in Manhunter, uh, AKA Red Dragon, both of those movies where the killer is seen as having a glint of hope. He can have like sort of a romantic relationship. He can actually do regular human things and have regular human emotions. Uh, Frank Zito doesn't have any of that. Yeah. And I think there is something kind of bracing and, I almost said wonderful. Uh, just yeah. in in well, fascinating. Yeah, fascinating way of depicting you know, having a character like that depicted just as raw as possible on screen. Um, I think Joe in, Spinell in is my, just such uh, a, a he's such a sympathetic actor that even though he's in the most unsympathetic things, he gives texture to a character yeah, and, who and might not have it. And there is a great sadness, but you don't feel sorry for this guy. No, at all. no, you, you kind of is, just, his existence is sad. There's no denying mm. it, but he's. He deserves everything he gets and more. Yeah, because he's murdering people in the most horrendous possible way. You have no sympathy for this guy whatsoever, and there's not even a part of you that wants him to get away with it. No, none. And and you're not even sort of gloating when he starts to feel sad. It's just, oh God, he lives this life of rage and violence, but he's not motivated by rage. He's motivated by this 
weird kind of sick inner life that brings him nothing but tragedy. Oh my god. You know uh, what I just realized? Hmm. This is remember Joker? <laughs> this is the movie Joker wished it could have been. This is the movie jo- well, Joker this, thinks it is. Yeah, um, this is this has all of the commentary, but without hitting over the head with it about mm. how how the city has fallen, how morals mm. have fallen, how mm. people who have gone mad get lost within but uh, the, it, the but urban it, I, muck. I think that that has much more to do with Taxi Driver, though, about sort of like looking at the world and seeing that it kind of failed you, and you kind of want well, to get like, back. That's at my it. point. Like, Joker there's, just there's, calls um, it out so much. Yeah. Maniac is is that. that. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like if you put clown makeup on Joseph Zito, mm. this is the best Joker movie in yeah. a way. It's and, really and, fair. And, well, and that's, uh, the, I, I wish we could have, could have had a Joker movie like that rather yeah. than sort of, man, the, we live in a society sort of commentary. It's like it everything that. fails and but there's that, uh, a lot of people really hate this line of dialogue, dialogue. I think it's fine. Like, what do you get when you cross a, a, hi, a homicidal loner and, you know, What's the actual line of dialogue I don't with, fucking remember. that he says on the TV? It's and, like, a, and a system that doesn't care about him. a system that doesn't care about him. You get what you fucking deserve, and he shoots a guy. And uh, Yep. Uh, there's no line of dialogue like that. There's no moment of catharsis for this guy. He, he's incapable of catharsis. And I, yep. I do like that kind of emotional extremity in a horror film. In my 20s, as many people do, I went through a phase where I just sort of consumed a lot of really extreme shit. I just tried to find the the sickest possible stuff. So it was like, yeah, digging down into trenches, trying to find things that would really disgust me. I'm glad I can still find things that disgust me. Yeah. Because I like to be disgusted and confronted by movies from time to time. From time to time. Maniac does it for me. It's kind of my bag. What that might say, and again, I don't want to sound like one of those guys who says, man, I really love that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it great. You've eaten humans, haven't you? <laughs> you know, it's, There's I, a I place for this. Up, I don't want There's to come across as like, like a sicko, but yeah, I, I think that it's it's really a good, terrifying movie. Yeah, and I think it's terrifying in a way that a lot of movies are afraid to be terrifying. Mm-hmm. They're holding back. And or don't even know how. Yeah. yeah, Maniac is a horror classic. I don't think mm-hmm. it's just a cult classic. I think it's a horror classic. I'm glad... You saw what I saw in it mm-hmm. because, uh, again, it's repulsive. It knows exactly what it's doing. It's, it's aiming to be repulsive. And there's a, and again, there is a place for that. And that is the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club uh, for the week. Uh, next week, uh, we decided that all of our options would be action movies on the streaming network Tubi. Yep. Tubi TV, which is actually a pretty good streaming service if you're not aware of it. It's free. It's got ads, but not so many ads that it gets really annoying like some streaming services. Uh, And they're actually kind of an interesting streaming service because they have a lot of old and cult stuff. Like a lot of stuff from like the 70s and the 80s. I was looking through, like I'm not so familiar with Tubi. It's not one of my regular go-tos, but yeah, I'm sort of brushing up against it for the first time. It's like a pretty good video store from 1989. Yeah, if you were in a video store from 1989, you'd see a lot of the stuff you see on Tubi. So we just uh, scoured the action section and we found a bunch of action movie classics and cult classics. Mm -hmm. And uh, amongst our nominees, I think, was Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, which I've never seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I have seen it. Yeah, I've, I, I, I've heard it's not very good, but I've never seen it. It's, it's okay. Uh, it's hard to get around the fact that Joel Gray plays a Chinese man. He was nominated for Golden Globe for that. Mm-hmm. Weird. 
but instead, the movie you picked, and I'm really glad you did, because this is actually one of my favorite action movies, uh, the Bruce Lee classic Fist of Fury, which I guess Whitney <laughs> has never seen. Never seen Fist of Fury. Fist of Fury is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the integral, like, milestone kung fu movies. Uh, and it is currently available for free on Tubi TV if you want to uh, check it out. Uh, funnily enough, the Criterion just announced that they're going to be releasing a whole Bruce Lee box set. Oh, wow. With okay. all five of his major films. The Big Boss, uh, Fist of Fury, Enter the Dragon, Way of the Dragon, and Game of Death, which was completed the, posthumously. The one, he's actually only in like a third of it. Um, I have issues with Game of Death. But those first four... That's pretty tight. That's a really cool thing that they're doing. I've, I've only seen Enter the Dragon, and it's been a while. So. Enter Dragon is cool, though. Uh, but Fist of Fury is seriously seminal 1970s filmmaking. I think it's one of those movies that kind of changed the way action was done. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited for when they get to see it. I hope you all get a chance to watch it, too, especially if you haven't already. And we will talk about that next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. As for what's playing next week on Critically Acclaimed... I don't know. We're kind of discovering as we go. Uh, yeah. Like, like, as we mentioned last week, uh, streaming services are a little squirrely about their release dates. They don't have, mm-hmm. like, a slate. And I think it's so they can rearrange at the last minute. Yeah, a lot of they them, like, announce stuff, like, a to. month before, like, coming up next month on Netflix. But even then, they might drop something by surprise mm-hmm. or... You didn't realize this was an original, yeah, and so yeah, we're just gonna discover what we can find. Here, here is a David Lynch short out of nowhere. Really? Oh, that's great. That is cool. It's got a monkey. I want to watch that. <laughs> I want to watch that. I need to get around to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so we'll be back next week with a whole bunch of new movie releases, and of course, our review of Fist of Fury, which again I love, and I can't wait to talk about <laughs> it with Whitney. Uh, so uh, that's coming up next week. Don't forget, we had a bunch of stuff uh, here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. In addition to our new movie reviews, we got canceled too soon, where we review TV shows lasted one season or less. Episode Zero, where we're looking at all the movies that inspired Star Wars, and it's an eclectic, interesting bunch. So I hope you listen to that. Uh, what else we got? We got we've got mail where we answer your fan mail, and over at the critically acclaimed network Patreon, patreoncom acclaimed network we have a ton of exclusive content. We've got all our yesterdays where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Scott Mance is our guest on the latest episode. Uh, we've got uh, Out of Gas where we review every single episode of Firefly. Uh, we've got Only the Best where we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, commentary tracks, not on Disney+. Plus. Oh, ton of stuff. And we're going to be making a few, uh, a few cool changes to our various perks uh, in the next month or so. So stick around because it's only getting cooler here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>